Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. You're looking for trouble. You've come to the right place. You're looking for trouble. Just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a piece of around with me I don't wipe my bottom when I go to the loo I'm rude to policemen and I pick my nose too there's no stopping me I'm bloody mad I smoke marijuana and I don't go to lectures cause I'm evil my middle name is Jeremy that is don't you that was rick mail i'm Catherine boyle i've got mark serby in the uh studio with me is it serby or serby 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 but you know you you pronounce it quite poshly so i'll go with that <laughs> i can't fine. help myself i'm just i'm dead posh <laughs> now uh, you've written a book about rick mail mm-hmm. uh, usually you'd say why rick mail but uh, everyone loves rick mail yeah why not rick mail yeah this is the thing and also um it's weird to say, but nobody else, there's no other book out there about Rick Mail apart from his autobiography. Now, obviously, for people who have read that autobiography, it's an incredible piece of work, but it's it's written in the Dr. Rick Mail pan-global phenomenon, third-person perspective. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of work if you read it as a screenplay. Right. If you read it as an autobiography, it doesn't tell you anything. Like, everything in the entire world is down to Rick. Like, he, he, you know, just created the world, to be honest. And it's great, but I'm like, I, I want to read about how he got to how he was and his influences and all of the f- success and all of the failures as well. Because, you know, there's things that didn't work for him as well. And I'm like, well, I want to read that book. Maybe I should just write that book. So what, his book is more like him enjoying himself, talking about the man, the legend that he became? Uh, it, it's not even that, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. I mean, like, hot, like there's, there's breaks in the chapters where he's written a letter to, like, Thatcher or the Queen or just, you know, random people. And then there's breaks in the chapters of, of photos of uh, young ladies who are topless. <laughs> just, just for no reason, it just says bird topless or something. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, this is exactly what you want from a Rick Mail book. Mm-hmm. But for truth, for real truth, it's in there, dig it out, but 
if you just want a straight story, you're not going to get it in that. But it's a it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's it's Rick through and through. I'm going to have to read that. When he uh, after he died, a load of those letters that he wrote to people came out, didn't they? In some really lovely moments, I don't know, disguised with abuse. And uh, I was talking to one of the um, producers, and he said, oh, "I love Rick Mail. My girlfriend had a mad crush on him, and she got a book signed by him, and he always signed it Love and Violence." <laughs> That's, I mean, that's just one of the things that he would write. You know, the thing is, uh, he was very good with, with writing things like that. You know, if you were a male, you would get roundly... Um, yeah, well, we can't say the words on air at all, <laughs> what he would write on there. But, you know, you would get that and you'd go, yeah, that's absolutely Rick. And then if if you were a female, you'd get something slightly naughty, something slightly perverted, maybe. <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, I imagine most females would be like, yeah, I'm okay with that, it's Rick. Because the thing is, and I don't know if you'll agree with this on uh, or not, but Rick was a very handsome man. Yeah, very sexy, and it's not even about what he looked like. It, no. He had a charm. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed loads and loads of people for the book as well who worked with Rick, and one of them was Andy Dillator, who went out on tour with him in the early 90s. And he said, when we were on tour, he said, obviously, I would uh, do the first half of the of the stand-up comedy and then Rick would come on and do the, the second half. He said and afterwards there would always be like a gaggle of women on the, at the stage door waiting. He said, and you always knew, he said, I would go out first. He said, then Rick would come out. And he said, there was this 30-second moment where the women didn't recognise him because he'd been on stage pulling these faces, gurning and everything mm -hmm. else like that and flicking the V-sign and whatever else. And then he would come out as this wonderfully, you know, preferred man, lovely, handsome and everything. And they'd go, well, that's not him. And then they'd look away and they'd go, hey, hey, hang on a second, that is him. Hang on a sec. So they'd all rush to the stage. But there was this 30 second gap where it was like, that's not Rick Mayo. But it was. Because the person who came out what was sort of um, smaller in an acting sort of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the real Rick Mayo then? A more shy person or? Only a few people really knew the real Rick Mayo family and those who got really close to him. I think that's the thing. Um, there is, certainly with Rick, there was an on and off button. I think he was on as soon as he left the house, but that was no bad thing at all. Um, you know, the, the stories that I've been told, which some of them are in the book, you know, happily to print them. Some of them were, I couldn't print at all, to yeah. be honest. Um, were just really good, fun stories. Like, he would be out with a few people and he'd be like, uh, people would want his autograph and everything else like that. And he'd be with somebody trying to do some work. He'd go, oh, this is my lover or this is, you know, this is my son or something like that. Just to make it really fun. Yeah. That was the thing. So, I think he was always on but he knew when to be off. That was the thing. Like, you know, a lot of celebrities and a lot of famous people who are in the entertainment industry don't know how to switch off which is an unfortunate thing and Rick knew I think he had that immediate switch that when he was out in public he was Rick Mayle when he was at home he was Richard Mayle right and, and it's a big difference so when he was out in public he was who the public expected to meet um I guess so. It was so. a bit of a defence thing because he was so outrageous, people would shrink back a little bit, maybe. No, I think that was just Rick. <laughs> I, I just think, he, I mean, the man oozed confidence. Yeah. That was the beauty about him. And I think that radiated to everybody else. Like, certainly, I think that people who grew up watching either The Young Ones or Bottom, I would imagine most of them turn around and say, my humour has been influenced by Rick more than anybody else and probably my confidence as well. And I think that's such a great thing is that you can look at somebody like Rick and never have met the man yet understand how powerful it is to have that confidence and everything going through him. And, you know, he wasn't afraid to stand up to everybody. I mean, there's photos online of him standing up to policemen, you know, and you're like... 
Only he could get away with that, really. And I think that's the beauty of Rick, and still is the beauty of Rick's legacy, that that confidence still comes through. That any time you watch it, you know, obviously you were playing that song earlier, yeah. which which was very early in his career. It was him with Jules Holland, actually. Yeah. Um, even then, him stood on stage, Jules Holland, um, and I think it was it Bill Wyman was playing. Bill Wyman. Bill on, Wyman was playing the guitar. Yeah. I, I, obviously, I I encourage everybody to watch the clip on YouTube because Bill Wyman stood there like, "What's going off? I really don't know. I have no idea." And yet, Rick is like, "You're on stage with me." Yeah, and he loves it. And that last part of the song, he's stretching it out and enjoying himself. He's not hurrying up. He's no. not going to make way for the next person. This is his moment. You can see him basking in it. Yeah, it's absolutely. Glorious. Yeah, absolutely. He knew how to work a stage. He knew how to work a crowd. He knew how to work an individual as well. And a camera. That thing that came out and it was passed around a lot again at the time of his death, where I think he was at like a wedding or some sort of function, and a camera about. had found his face in a crowd, and he realised he's being watched. He just flirts with the camera outrageously. Yeah. yeah. But it's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. He, he just knew how to make everybody laugh. He knew when the camera was on him. He knew where to stand, what to do as well. However, interestingly, when he was making Bottom, he was always very nervous about, the, was he at his best? Right. Was he always at his best? I think because Bottom really was his and AIDS big project really because you know the young ones was obviously lisa mayer and ben elton as well and and the guys who were acting in it as well nigel plano christopher ryan alexi sale so we kind of had that group to hide behind a bit but with bottom, but they loomed large those two didn't they really? oh absolutely absolutely but i think bottom because it's their defining piece of work and certainly i would say rick's defining piece of work for my generation um I, I think he was very nervous about how it went down. You know, people said he would he would get really, really nervous before any take at all. And you think, that doesn't sound like him. But at the same time, I can understand because he was a master of comedy. He wanted everything to be right. You know, he absolutely adored Laurel and Hardy. He loved Tony Hancock. He hated um, the what I guess you would call end-of-peer comedians, you yeah. know, the, the my mother-in-law joke people. He hated them because it was all so safe and, and just easy. And he was an alternative comedian, let's not forget that. Yeah. And yet, he broke through to the mainstream. And what you're talking about there with the traditional way of doing comedy and those references to Laurel and Hardy and, um, and uh, Tony Hancock, the side-eye to camera, those kind of break, those moments where it's just you and him... Mm. That's part of the allure, isn't it, for the viewer? Yes, absolutely, because it feels like... He knows that I know. Yeah, exactly, and it feels like he's only connecting with you as well. Like, because, I, I mean, we were talking just off air before we started about the bottom live tours. Yes. And granted, you're sat in the audience with about two or 3,000 other people, and yet there are moments in those shows, even when you re-watch it on DVD, where you think, I think he's only talking to me now. Yeah. And you're, you're, how does somebody managed to get that good at doing something where it feels like you're only talking to one person. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Very intimate. Do you think it... Well, we were talking about the, the females lining up afterwards, but it is a mostly male thing with Rick Mail, isn't it? Um, what, in like terms a, of fans? A, and sort of reaching out and, and kind of identifying with that 14-year-old boy that you were. Yes, I would say so. Um... 
I mean, it's not a bad thing no. at all, but I think it is very much geared towards male slapstick, you know, frying pan in the face, that's funny, trapping the head in the fridge or something. You know, we don't advocate those at all, but they're very funny. Yeah, and you know it's too big to be real as well, a lot of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they always said it was like a real-life Tom and Jerry cartoon, and it is. Yeah. It really is. You know, they're an old married couple in Bottom, and it's Tom and Jerry. Um, but I think it certainly chimes a lot more with male than females i think also because there wasn't that many females who he worked with you know you think about the comic strip and obviously worked with uh, don french and jennifer saunders and, and there was a few others in there but they they weren't in all of those episodes at all and you think back to the young ones not that many females in their bottom not that many females either uh, filthy rich and cat flap nothing like that mm -hmm. either i mean really when you think about it probably the most work he ever did um, with a female all in one go was probably Drop Dead, Dead Fred. Fred. Yeah, with Phoebe Cates, which is a very different actress than what you would expect him to work with. But it worked. It didn't work at the time. I mean, it was... No, I remember it coming out and people going, mm. but it's a lot of people's favourite film. Oh, d here's the thing. I've been doing uh, these Skype Q&As with the Alamo Drafthouse in the US over the past few weeks. They've been selling out. All of them have been selling out because people don't see these film, this film on the big screen enough and people absolutely adore this film now. I think because certainly when probably you and I were growing up and we first saw it, we yeah. were like, look, we love the slapstick, we love the fact that he's rubbing poo in the mum's carpet and saying nasty words to the mum. You're like, this is really good fun. This is, And then when you watch it again as an adult, you appreciate it for so many other things. It's now studied as the number one film about mental health in California. Like, there's a whole research department that uses this film once a year to explain to people who can't understand what adults go through who have imaginary friends, and right. they show them Drop Dead Fred. And, you see, this film lives on in such a big legacy. It really does. He's so great, though. The, the face he had, the fact that he didn't have to do... It seemed like he wasn't doing very much, but, in fact, he was working and manipulating the audience all the time. Yeah. Uh, I remember him primarily, I and mean, we talk about, you know, uh, bottom and stuff, and I do feel like that was more kind of aimed at a young daft lads when I was a young daft Thank girl. You. Do you Thank know what you. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I was into it too, but I wasn't a massively girly girl, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But uh, Lord Flashheart, that was purely for the ladies, surely, wasn't it? <laughs> That was pure sex, that was. <laughs> and the thing is, to be honest with you, I think that was probably about 90 to 95% Rick. It's hilarious. To be honest, you know. And the thing is, as well, is think about how often he is in Blackadder. Yeah. At least 10 minutes per, per series. That's not a lot. Yet beyond, if, if somebody says to you Blackadder, you kind of instantly think about the relationship between Blackadder and Baldrick. Mm -hmm. But then the next thing, in the next instance, you think of Lord Flashheart, whether it is in the trenches or whether it is, uh, you know, when he turns up and he's wearing a dress or something. And you're like, wow, this is, he, he just oozed sex. Yeah. And he knew it. And all of the lines, you were like, ooh. This is raunchy stuff yeah. for a British BBC comedy, which, you know, is very funny comedy, don't get me wrong, but it felt, when you watch it back, it feels like Flashheart is completely in the wrong 
show, yeah. to be honest, but it works, that's the thing. But that's part of the thing. It's interesting you say that that was more more him than you'd seen in other roles because it did feel like he'd swoop in, take over, and everyone else kind of stood back because mm. he didn't know what he was going to do. And yeah. that kind of unconvention- uh, unconventionality and the fact you didn't know what was going to happen next, that was part of his power, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the thing is, w- when uh, he first appeared in Blackadder Series 2, it was, where he comes through the door, he bursts through the door and everything else like that, um, nobody knew what he was going to do. Nobody knew at all. They Basically, what had happened is they'd said something and it, he, when they were practising it before cameras were rolling, Rick was a little bit lethargic and, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going it done. And it was, it was, it was Rick Mayle, but it wasn't the Rick Mayle, the... the action the sex the adventure and everything and then when cameras were rolling he did everything that you see in the actual show and what you get is a natural reaction from if you look at stephen fry in that clip stephen fry stood back with a huge smile on his face because he already knows what rick's like anyway because he's worked with him but there's others looking back like miranda richardson who's like whoa what are we experiencing (laughs) here yeah and i think Maybe Rowan Atkinson was possibly a little bit annoyed about it all. because it was his vehicle, but Flash Mm. just takes over. Yeah, absolutely. There's no other way of doing it. I mean, I can't imagine another comedic actor playing that now at all. Or even if, how would you play it? No. Beyond... Because for anyone else to do that, it would be too much. Yeah, that's very true. But for Rick, it just felt normal. Yeah. It felt... Here's Rick doing his thing. Everyone stand back and uh, and, and worship at the altar of <laughs> madness. But there was a mad f- flash in his eye, wasn't there? Yeah. So people would kind of back up a little bit and let him do his thing. Yeah, I mean, he certainly had those moments, flights of fancy, that sometimes didn't work. But it didn't matter because what came next did work. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, he, Him and Aid, when they were writing, they very much liked the, uh, the power of three jokes. So, you know, you would have one joke, then the next one would be bigger and then the next one would be huge so you'd have ha 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 and then you would have the huge belly laugh however there's times in bottom and i've written it in the book where they go for five wow. in a row and i'm talking about like the moments where they're talking about um pin the tail on a donkey and they go well we haven't got a tail they go well sellotape on a donkey and they go well we haven't got a donkey you know and it ends up being put a bit of sellotape on the fridge but they go through this entire list and each one gets bigger and bigger and having spoken to loads and loads of people who who worked with rick and who wrote with rick as well he would always say come on there's got to be something funnier than what we've already got now that's a man who knows comedy yeah really knows comedy that's someone who's secure they also used to do this thing which i think is brave and annoying and brilliant at the same time which is do the joke do it again do it again till it stops being funny then carry on doing it so it's annoying, then d- keep doing it so it becomes funny again. Yeah. Now that takes, that takes some confidence as well, doesn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's the thing, is that, as we said, he oozed confidence. Um, I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs, who was one of the directors for The New Statesman, and in the script for this episode of New Statesman, um, there was this scene, and it basically said, uh, th- there's one joke in this, it's probably about three minutes, this scene, if that, and there's one joke, a really big joke right at the end, and Rick turned around to him and he said, I think I can get three jokes on this. He said, the first joke will be when uh, Piers Fletcher Dervish said something and he said, I'm not going to react instantly. I'm just going to stare out the window and my eyes are going to get wide. He said, that's joke. That's laugh number one. He said, then that he'll say something else. And he said, I'll slowly turn. He said, that's laugh number two. And he said, then the third one, I will do something massive. And he said, that is laugh number three. And he got all of those in the first take. Oh, God, I 
I love him so much. We'll talk more in just a second. We'll take a quick break. If you want to give us a ring, you can do, because I know a lot of you worship at the altar of Rick Mail, and I can't blame you for it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. That's 0344 499 1000. You're listening to Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Boyle. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. It's just me and Mark Serby talking about Rick Mail. He's written a new book called Comedy Genius, Rick Mail. It's got a lovely picture of uh, Rick on the front flicking the Vs and a very lovely picture of him on the back all beardy with a, with a fag on the go. Just this, this man, it would appear, can do no wrong. Everyone kind of loves Rick Mail. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about how um, Richard became Rick, because that's the title of one of your sections in here. Yeah, it is. It's the early years chapter, basically, and how he was born in Matchintyre, which is this lovely, quaint village in Essex, um, and then moved very early on um, over to Worcester. And basically, uh, his his parents were teachers, and his dad was a drama teacher, and that's how he started to get into it. So very early on, he was, <laughs> he was on stage um, singing Christmas carols, and the teacher turned around to him and said, listen, you can't sing. Stop drowning out everybody with your appalling voice. Wow. Just stand there and mime the words. However, even at the young age, he knew, hang on, they're not looking at me anymore. So what he did is he mimed the words really loud, so like over, overly elaborated with his mouth, then started to wiggle his bottom as well. And everybody was laughing at him, so the teacher took him off stage and put him in the corner. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he continued to wiggle his bottom in the corner. So people were just looking at him in the corner instead of what was going on stage. So, I mean, that's that was when he was in primary school. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine how it got more and more, it's just in terms of going from Richard to Rick. But he he was in his dad's production of Waiting for Godot, which he eventually went on to play with Aid Edmondson in the West End. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in that. He'd done a couple of other plays. He'd done a Bertolt Breck play as well. Um, and then when he went to Manchester, which actually he failed uh, most of his O-levels, and he got in through the clearing system rather than anything else. He was quite lucky to go to Manchester. That's where he met uh, Ben Elton and Lisa Mayer, but that was in the second year. The first year, he, jo- he joined a comedy troupe called 20th Century Coyote, which was set up by his friend Lloyd Peters. Right. And it also had his other friends in there, Mark Jewison as well, uh, Mike Redfern. And they just went off and, and started to do comedy. Um, but at the time, it wasn't called stand-up comedy. No, Stand-up comedy wasn't a word in the 70s. It was called cabaret or alternative cabaret. So they would go and do these strange, almost Monty Python-esque sketches at uh, the Band on the Wall place in Manchester, but they would do it at lunchtimes because that's the only time they could get in there as well. And they were just doing it for the love of it. And slowly they developed their act. Now, the name changed from Richard to Rick. Now, we're not too sure when this happened or how it happened mm-hmm. either. Uh, one of the stories is that he loved uh, the cartoon stories of Eric the Viking. Right. The other one is that there was a young boy at school who was called Rick who seemed to be getting all the women. Now, I know which one I'm going to go with, to be honest with you. I really do. Um, So, by the time he was at Manchester, it had gone from Richard to Rick. And then him... uh, And then... Later on in that same year, Aid Edmondson came into 20th Century Coyote. And uh, I've got a wonderful quote in the book where uh, Adrian Edmondson had told somebody years, years later that uh, Rick was trying to get him into, this, into 20th Century Coyote. And he said, you know, you come down, you're really cool, you're a proper actor. Because Adrian Edmondson wanted to be a real actor. I mean, he is now, obviously yeah, a very theatrical actor now. Um, but he wanted to be a real actor. And uh, Adrian Edmondson said to him, 
I'm only going to do it if you give me a contract. So Rick wrote a contract out there that said, join 20th, it was something like, join 20th Century Coyote, I promise it will be horrible and all terrible and la-di-da, Rick Mail. And he said and he was true to his word. That's exactly how they started, 20th Century Coyote. They started to sort of pull away and Lloyd Peters, who was the co-founder, oh, who was the founder of 20th Century Coyote, went off to do some drama stuff. He, he did Boys in the Black stuff. So he was off doing drama with uh, Mike Lee. That's like heavy, that. heavy drama. It's a big challenge change as well, considering yeah. you're going from doing Monty Python yeah. star routines. Being daft in pubs, yes. Yeah, to going and working with people like that. So he'd left and Rick and Aid had said, do you mind if we keep the name 20th Century Coyote? And that's when it started. They started to develop. They went up to Man uh, up to Edinburgh to do the Fringe and one of the first plays was called Death on a Toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, was uh, Edmondson stuck on the toilet and Rick playing God and talking to him. Oh my God. There was another one uh, where it was called uh, God's Testicles, where they both had bought sleeping bags and hung them in the rafters and and sat in them and talked to each other as God's Testicles. All right, okay. So they played right and left, basically. I don't know who was right <laughs> or who was left, I'll be honest. Tell me about their friendship, their, their relationship. Was it as cosy and fun as it would appear from their work? Or? Yeah, absolutely. They... You know, when Rick died, Aid put out a, a statement that said, never did I laugh as much as I did working with Rick. And all of the people who I spoke to said them two together, would they'd be like their own little clique in that they would just laugh at things that made no sense as well. But that came through in their writing, mm. that all of the things that they found funny, they put into the script and hoped people would find funny and hoped everybody had got the same sense of humour. Fortunately, we had, and it worked brilliantly. But their relationship was... Well, you know, it, it was probably more than brothers, to be honest. And when you spend 30-odd years with each other, working day in, day out, and knowing each other's routines, the, you know, it's the, there's nothing else there but to say they, they loved each other, really, when yeah. they were working. That's the answer I hoped you'd give. Yes, yeah. that comes through, doesn't it, in the work? Yeah, absolutely. And all the different permutations throughout, you know, as they got older together, mm. there can't have been... There can't have been rivalry or ego in that because they seem to choose to be together a lot more than, than not. They did up to a certain point and then they split. Um, Rick wanted to do some more bottom and uh, Adrian Edmondson didn't. He, right. he decided to go off and they, they didn't work together for a long, long time. And then uh, just before the end, they were, there was sort of a little bit of talk of, of doing bits and bobs. But yeah, they, they just basically stopped the last time they were together on television was you may remember this adrian edmondson did like it was comic relief or stand up to cancer or something where they would get celebrities to do um famous dance numbers oh yeah and he did um swan lake was it or something i'm trying to think now and he had a tutu on and everything and basically it finished with rick dropping something on his head it's Let's Dance for Comic Relief. Thank you. Ian was on that episode. Oh, was he? Yeah, because he said that's the time he briefly met Rick Mail. There we go. So that was it. That was the last time they ever worked together. Gosh, really? That was yeah. a while ago. Yeah, and then they split and, you know, the comedy world lost a great team, yeah. to be honest. Um, and they went off and did other bits. You know, and the thing is, separately, they did really good other bits as well. And the... the tragedy of the fact that Rick is no longer alive with us is that we were getting a Rick Naissance with Man Down 
and he was doing some of his best work. I mean, Man Down on TV, for those who haven't seen it, I actively encourage everybody to see it because even though he's in it briefly, it's the old Rick mm. jumping over a car boot or, you know, throwing water at Greg Davis. Yeah, he's his dad in that, isn't he? Or something? Yeah, and, I mean, to be fair, he looks like him. <laughs> and that, that was part of the casting, is that when Greg Davis was writing it, he's like, well, who do I get to play my dad? And everybody was saying, you've got to uh, get Rick. Now you've you're talking about Rick. it. It's the faces as well that he does. Yeah. So, you know, you had that, and then he had done some other bits as well, like... Obviously, we may touch on it, the, the quad bike accident in 98. After that, he wasn't on TV for a long time, but he was doing uh, podcasts, audio recordings, audio books, etc. And he'd done some great stuff in his later years. Like, there's some stuff out there that I actively encourage people to listen to, like Cutie and the Sofa Guard is, is a really interesting piece that um, is basically the story of a man who buys a sofa and it comes with an armed guard. And the armed <laughs> guard only leaves when he thinks you understand how great the sofa is and it's rick it's fantastic and there's a uh, there's some twins in there called the wisdom twins and he, he does both of them they're absolutely brilliant we can't play a clip at all there's no way we can um and then just he, imagine just imagine just, rick Mail. yes please do yes with lots of swear words <laughs> in um and then he also did a, a great a series called the last hurrah which he always said was his last great piece of work and he said it was for the fans and basically it's the story of an immortal snowman reciting his life to a journalist while he sat in a gentleman's club swigging sherry and munching on prawns and it's every bit as hilarious as you can imagine it to be Oh, you're making me want to have a proper Nick, Nick Rick Mayle uh, binge fest this weekend, I know what I'm going to be doing I won't be going out, Cleo's on the phone Hey Cleo Hello. Hello. What do you want to say? I don't know, I don't know if you've mentioned while I've been sitting, getting through, but uh, when he did George's Marvellous Medicine on oh, Jack Norrie. Oh, God, that was a massive influence on me and my sister, and uh, unfortunately for my mum's bathroom, we did reenact quite a lot of that. It was brilliant, wasn't it? <laughs> it was great. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, how did that come about, do you know? Uh, well, obviously, such a great storyteller that they, ju they just asked him to do it, and then... It was the one that got the most complaints ever. Yeah. And he wasn't invited back for years. Wow. Years really? and years, yeah. Because ultimately, it was encouraging children to do what you did. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And parents were not happy with that. I mean, that's a, that's a really good uh, moment there on Jack and Ori. I think it made Jack and Ori. Jack and Ori was always boring, wasn't it, Cleo? There was, there was him, Cribbins, and. Uh, what's his face? Kenneth Williams, who really. You ever really just like remembered from watching yeah. that stuff because it was just like, ah. Uh. But when he did it, I'd, I'd, I think it was just it was sort of after the last was it the last series of the young ones or the between the two. It was between the two. Was it? Because I remember the first series of the young ones. I was too young to understand what was going on, but I knew it was funny, and I loved Viv because as a kid, like he's bashing things and going through walls and screaming and burning things down. So I, I loved him. But by the time the second series came around, I was like, I want to be Rick. Because Rick was just so <laughs> funny. Because I've always been, like, obsessed with comedy and stuff. Even as a little kid. And I was like, hey, just... So all his, all through his career, I just got so bloody obsessed with him. He's brilliant. And the stuff in Bottom, it's like... like people just think of it as the no-gag stuff. and uh, But watching it... It's the stuff you know. It's the stuff you're not focusing on, like in the background. Um, there's always something going on. 
So if you're watching, it's, it's like watching... There's elements of uh, Python in there, but there's elements of... A lot of elements of uh, Tory Hancock. Yeah. The, the despair and the, all that stuff, the depression stuff. And there's bits of Stepdown Son in there. and it's just, it's just amazingly written. And like people just think, oh, that's all fart jokes, knob gags. And it, and it is, to an extent. Yeah. But I think that that's a front... Because when you watch them acting together, whether Eddie's at front at the front of the, the screen doing his bit, you've got to watch Rick in the background acting, and vice versa. Every time Rick's in the foreground, you have to keep your eye on Eddie because he's hilarious. Just the reactions and the the stupidness. So when he died, I was mortified. Yeah. And then. I've spoken to a lot of people who said, I was excessively upset about someone I was never going to meet oh. and never had met, but it was someone that was already part of your life. It tore me a bit, and then Robin Williams died a couple of months later. I think that was it. I think Rick died in June. Robin Williams, Robin Williams was the August of 2014. And I've told Cathy's, but you don't know this, I died for a bit. And I was in, in a coma in September... So what I did when I came out, because I can't remember a thing about it, but when people said, hey, what was it like? What was what was it like in the coma? I just said, oh, just to have a jog. I said, I used to, I used to knock around with Rick Mail and uh, Robin <laughs> Williams. Just, uh, just <laughs> oh, you wouldn't have come back. <laughs> that was yeah, true. I was kinda, <laughs> but I was like, oh. It was a, it was a tough summer for comedy fans, that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was so sad. It was too young to go. Thanks, Cleo. Nice to speak to you. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. I mean, people have got a real place in their heart for a brick, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was hoping we weren't going to bring it up about him tragically passing, but we do have to touch on it. Yeah. And the thing is, what what was uh, everybody noticed is the fact that Rick, an alternative comedian, was on every front page of a newspaper. He was the first thing on every news. An alternative comedian. Now think about it. When was the last time you had an alternative whatever on the front pages of when they died? The only other person I can think of would be David Bowie. Yeah. But Rick was on the front page of everything. It wasn't just one day either. It continued throughout the week that there was eulogies there and then it was here's the best bits and everything. And there was like seven page spreads in papers of like here's the best bits. That's an alternative comedian, but that shows you how universally loved he was, how much of a pioneer he was, how much of a genius he was. You know, that's why I've called the book Comedy Genius, and that's why I argue in the book very early on why he really was a genius. You know, we all know that the word genius is overused these days. You hear it all the time. That's genius. That's genius. It's not genius. It's just funny. But Rick really was a genius. And that's why I've argued that he is in it. And I think when we all heard the news, we, we, I think we probably all did a double check, take yeah. of, no, no, he, it, it, no, he's already survived death once on the quad bike. You know, I mean, he was dead longer than uh, than Jesus. And obviously he told everybody about it. Um, and that was the beauty of it, that why would you come knocking again? Yeah, that was the thing. All his performances that I can think of, the ones that, that most people know, He's a force of nature. He's full of life. He's yeah. got too much life, if anything. He's bouncing off the walls and making yeah. everyone else stand back. So for him to go in his 50s, no one could believe it, could they? No, absolutely not. That's the thing. And as I said, we were getting the Rick Nasons. You know, we just had the first series of Man Down. Everybody was like, Rick's back. Rick's yeah. back, baby. And he's on Channel 4 as well, so he's got that, that slight edge to him I was as say, well. How could he still be that cool in his 50s? He was, though. 
he could, it, it didn't matter. He was cool, whatever. That yeah. was the thing. You know, he could have been cool. Uh, you know, well, I mean, he makes jokes of it all the time, even in all the shows that, you know, he was just cool. Yeah. That was the thing. That speech he gave as well. And it, and it kind of went into the internet age and he went viral with a number of things. But the speech he gave at the university when, when he, he was, got the doctorate. Yeah. 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 One, of the, one of the most emotional moments. And the thing is, he everything he says there um, is absolutely brilliant. It's his mantras for life. And you, you just watch it and you go, he's absolutely bang on the money with every single thing yeah. that he's saying. And this is a man who never really, you know, he didn't really work, like, he didn't work in a shop, he didn't work in a factory or anything else like that. He was just in entertainment, so he didn't really have the day-to-day -day grind of life. But with those mantras that he was talking about, you're like, this is, he's talking to me, mm. and I'm working the nine-to-five here, but I get everything he's saying, he was such a smart man. Tell you what, January being January and everyone being a bit glum, if you get time, Google it, uh, dear listener, and have a listen to that because there'll be something in it for you, I swear. And, and I'm definitely going to have a listen to that tonight as I'm going home. Um, we were talking earlier off air about how it looked like he had a charmed life and it looked like everything was so effortless, but he had failed and he, had, he wasn't afraid to fail. He, would, he was willing to try things and keep trying, and the failures kind of made the successes, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. There's a lot uh, that I watched or listened to for the book where I'm like, this is not good. This is not good stuff at all. But that helped. That helped him a lot mm -hmm. because he started to develop things and, and sort of kickbacks as well where he was like, I'm not going to do anything else like that. It really didn't resonate. What would you say were the main ones that sort of jumped out at you? Uh, there's a film called Just For The Record, which is uh, a British film that was all about the internal workings of the music industry. It should have been great. Yeah. It should have been really interesting. Um, and it was terrible absolutely horrendous it really was um th there's other bits out there as well like he he'd done a couple of other um early horror bits as well and you kind of think rick in a horror film doesn't really work i have to say actually later on in life he did a film called errors of the human body which was a horror film uh, i think it was a german horror film actually and he's really good in it like he's this is it, it playing it straight? Playing or? it straight, yeah. And he's the scientist in it. Um, but he's playing it straight and he's very good in that. But there were earlier things that really didn't work at all. There were some Hollywood movies that didn't work as well. He went to Canada to make a film with Leslie Nielsen that was absolutely terrible. Um, very early on in his career, he went off to Hollywood to make a film called Little Noises with um, Tatum O'Neill. Right. And... It's just a strange piece of work. It's a very independent piece of work, uh, but it, it doesn't work because Rick turns up and is sort of 50% of Rick Mail, but he's opposite these other real established actors in Hollywood. And he's just like, this is night and day. This is not working at all. And I think possibly maybe that put him off seeking fame and fortune in the US for quite a bit until Drop Dead Fred really he should have been massive in Hollywood why not why didn't it kick why didn't it kick in for him I just think he loved Britain I just think he loved it here because he could have been Ricky Gervais couldn't he Yes, absolutely. He could have taken over. Yeah, and there were times where his agent was taking phone calls all over the place and he was just being offered telephone numbers. That's why I was told. Direct quote there as well. Telephone numbers. And yet, he, he didn't want to do it. He was very much a family man though. He loved the family. Absolutely loved the family. And I can imagine that 
being away from the family for however long it is to film, you know, mm-hmm. it's well, it's going to be more than eight weeks. You're probably talking about three months. Probably wouldn't sit right with him, you know. It's not. I couldn't imagine him doing that. You know, I couldn't imagine him being on the treadmill of big blockbuster films. Even though he should be, as you rightly point out, he should have been massive. But it didn't really work out. But thankfully, now the cult that is Drop Dead Fred is bigger than ever. Uh, it's just so tragic that it happens after the fact, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the good thing is that before he died, I think it started to come back round again and people were appreciating it uh, for for more than what they initially saw for it. But now it's so huge. It's so huge. I mean, I'd be interested to know, because you do a family film club, don't you, yeah. with your kids? I'd love to know what your kids think to that film. I'm going to show it to them this weekend. Because it's such. A, it would be such a different film in their eyes compared to yours now. because yeah, I showed them that that song we played at the beginning that you did with Jules Holland, um, I Am Evil. My eight-year-old found it hilarious. I mean, just because of the mention of bums and not wiping your bum and all that <laughs> stuff, it's the naughtiest thing she's ever seen. I think she'd love it. Yeah. She thinks she would love it. Or they'll be terrified by it because he's so out of control, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There are terrifying moments yeah. in that film. It's probably jump scares and... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, him sinking the houseboat in it, it's a huge moment, quite a scary moment. Um, I think they'll love it, but I do think you're going to hear a lot more about Drop Dead Fred from your kids yeah. afterwards, which will be great. Right. But... I, I'm glad you've said that because I've been looking at something new to show them because they will watch the same things over and over which is why I started this film club thing I was like right now we're going to watch something that I think will be good for you and yeah. nine times out of ten they agree sometimes it doesn't really kick in some of the older films are a bit slow for my kids I don't know the thing is with Drop Dead Fred is that Rick doesn't turn up for about 10 or 15 minutes right. and when you come at it as an adult you're like right come on where's Rick where's Rick Phoebe Cates, no, get, get her off, get her off. We need more Rick, we need more Rick. And then he comes on like a whirlwind, and then he sort of disappears for a little bit. Yeah. And you go, where's Rick? Stop all this lovey-dovey nonsense with Phoebe Cates. We want Rick back on again. And then fortunately he turns up and hits her with a shovel or something. And you're like, okay, right, it's fine now. He's here all the way through. But there's moments in that film, like the moment where he slides under uh, the mother's... Uh, legs and looks up the dress and goes, ooh, cobwebs. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, you're thinking, <laughs> okay, um, that's an interesting idea there. And it's funny in yeah. the moment, but when you watch it as an adult, you're like, ooh, this is uh, this is a bit too far, still to Still, my honest. kids would find it hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still hilarious, to be honest with you. I only saw it the other week, and I'm like, that's really funny. But <laughs> but part of my brain is going, ooh, that's a bit naughty It doesn't now. stand up Yeah, either. that's not working, I've got to say. Let's take another little break, but I could talk about Rick Mail all night, turns out. 03444991000 is the phone number to call if you want to join in. But otherwise, we're just going to carry on. Loving this. Uh, this is Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Boyle. And Sam, you are about to press Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio Just talking about the gorgeousness that is uh, Rick Mayle and talking about you know the, you hear this the phrase men want to be him women want to be with him I think some men wanted to be with him as well to be honest I don't blame them charm 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 and he was good friends with someone else who you could say that about Alan Rickman Yes he was good friends with him yeah because they were in a film together which film was that? They were in uh, what turned out to be, uh, I'm trying to think of what it's called now, Churchill, The Hollywood Years. <laughs> yeah, it's a decent film, it's okay, it's fine, you know, yeah. it's, it's worth seeking out. It's got Christian Slater in it and it's quite fun, but yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, doesn't Christian Slater play Churchill? Uh, is he, Ch- yeah, Churchill, the, the younger years, so it's kind of like, 
it's kind of like Maverick, yeah. basically. Um, and then they've got it's surrounded by this huge British cast, but it's directed by Peter Richardson, who did the comic strip presents. Right. So it's in a, essentially it is a comic strip presents film. But not many people are aware of it. Right. But yeah, I think that's where they met. They might have met before, but they, they really got on together. There's a picture on the internet of them two at the premiere, and they are just... Somebody has said something funny, and Rick is laughing, and Alan's just doing that. You know that sort of look that he had, which was brilliant, where he was just like, oh. And you're like, oh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall with these two. Yeah. Because I get the feeling they they just laughed and laughed and laughed, and yet... You kind of don't think that they would get on, really. No, because you assume that Alan Rickman would have been rather dry and maybe Rick would have been too silly, but, you know, you never know people, do you, really? This is the thing, yeah. And it, it clearly, Rick was a... He got love from everybody. Yeah. That's the thing. Everybody. Just everybody. Nobody has got a bad story about Rick Mail. I'm sorry, they just don't. And if they do, don't bring it round here. We're not interested. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? People yeah. don't want to hear it. Yeah, you can imagine somebody go, yeah, I've got this story about... It. In fact, there's one online where somebody was interviewing him and apparently Rick was in a bad mood and he put the phone down and I read it and I'm thinking, well, maybe it was you, mate. Yeah. Maybe it was you. Considering that you're the only one saying anything negative. Yeah, exactly. You would yeah. suggest that. I was half tempted to tweet him and say, it's probably you, mate. <laughs> But then you probably find out why. Uh, also, you t we were talking off air about how um, Rick kind of... There would be things that he didn't want to talk about, right? And if he didn't want to talk about it, there was no way you were going to get him onto it. That mm. Australian interview you were telling me about... Oh, yeah. ...where he was sitting with Ben Elton? Yeah, he was sat with Ben Elton. This was early when they went out on tour in Australia. Because Rick was loved in Australia. Absolutely loved. And they went out there a few times as well. Um, and this was the time when they went out there. And this is when Ben Elton met his wife, oh, now right. wife, on this tour. You wouldn't um, think he'd have a chance with Rick there. <sighs> there you go, you see. <laughs> Rick was elsewhere, I imagine, but <laughs> somebody had sat them down and basically the, the entire idea of the, the interview was the fact that, right, tell us about the machinations of comedy, of your comedy. And Ben Elton sat there and as he does, you know, he's, he's talking at length about these things and talking whatever else. And then Rick is just sat there. He's got this hat on, this weird hat, but all he's doing is he's doing that ear thing where he folds his ear into his own ear canal and then it pops out. Right. And he just keeps doing this all the way through the interview. And you can tell that at some point Ben Elton's like, are you going to chime in or not? And Rick's like, no, I'm You're just going to sit here and do my ear thing. He's in the corner wiggling his bum like he was when he was a kid. <laughs> That's exactly the thing, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. He would much rather be out there making childish movements or something yeah. than, than actually giving away the secrets. I'm not going to explain to you how I do it, just enjoy the fact that I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm not going to show you behind the curtain, basically. Yeah. I'm going to show you. Who cares, really? You, if you've got Rick Mail standing in front of you, you want him to do the Rick Mail stuff. Sure. It's true. I mean, I love to hear from film directors about certain films. You know, I'll happily listen to Quentin Tarantino for hours on end about how he shoots certain things on, like, you know, Panavision or something. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. But Oh, and you know he'll love that as well. Yeah, exactly. This is the thing. Like, give me nine hours with Tarantino. It's not enough. But with Rick, I'd be like, no, I, listen, just... Do the stuff. Just, just be you, and you tell know. Tell me the stories in your way. Yes, exactly. You know, tell me the stories of how you uh, died for longer than Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, he told everybody. He, he told everybody. I mean, it was it. his opening line. The first time he met Gwyneth Powell, who played his wife in Man Down, he was like, "Hi, I'm Rick. Uh, I was long. I was dead longer than Jesus." <laughs> There's no comeback from that, though, is there? There is. 
how do you come back from something like that? You know, she's like, well, I was Mrs. McCluskey in Grange Hill. And you're like, I mean, to anybody else, it would be like, that's a pretty good role, actually. Yeah. But you're with Rick Mayle. Yeah. Oh. oh, what a shame. We did mention, I know we don't really like to go into the negative, but you did say, and I know you've written a book about Pacino because we've spoken about that before. Mm. And there's a similar thing going on in some of Rick Mayle's roles. You say you feel like he's a bit behind the eyes. You can see he's doing it for the money. Um, I think they got to a point where maybe it did feel that there were certain projects that he was just doing because it, it got to a point where nobody was offering him comedy. Right. Because you know how people come in and out of fashion, as is always the way. I think it got to a point where people were possibly sick of Rick Mail, you know, the skits and everything. Yeah. And I'm doing he, a show, and it's not a Rick Mail show, so he can't be in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, why would we have Rick Mail in a Rick Mail show? It seems pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are projects out there that he did, and you can see them where you just think, yeah, this is not what he should have been doing at all. I mean, the thing is as well, he was doing these shows and being paid for it, but at the same time, behind the scenes, he was storing that money up and trying to do his own things right. as well. Okay, so, so that was the reason. So he was trying to do bits and bobs uh, like that, but at the same time, there's a lot out there where you're like, this is not great. This is not even good. This is not even average. Mm-hmm. This is quite bad. What do you reckon then? Too tight a leash? Um, that's a good question. I... It's probably a number of things, to be honest. Uh, yeah, probably two tight a leash. If you're going to have Rick Mail, you've got to have Rick Mail doing something. It takes a brave person to turn around to Rick Mail and say, we don't want you to play it like this. We actually want you to play it straight. It happens a couple of times. As I said, that uh, film, Errors of the Human Body, which is a horror film, where he plays it straight, he's really good in that. And it takes somebody brave to turn around and say, well, actually, we want you to play it straight. We think mm-hmm. you can do it. And actually, he did straight roles. You know, you think about uh, Rick Mail Presents, the shows that he... Uh, the six episodes that he did for ITV where he showed off his dramatic side there was Dancing Queen Mickey oh, I Love I just about remember that yeah I what mean, was that was that like a sort of Tales of the Unexpected type thing yeah it was all co-written by Rick but it was all just different stories completely so Dancing Queen was him and Helena Bonham Carter right. which was the best one of the lot uh, he had got drunk at his stag do and his mates had put him on a train to Scarborough and he was stranded in Scarborough with the stripper which was Helena Bonham Carter but there's a load of things going on in that film that are really interesting. But then he also did Mickey Love, which was about a TV presenter who was being pushed out by somebody young and hip and trendy. Um, There was Claire de Lune, which was this lovely story about him and his daughter trying to survive, and he's a taxi driver, and he takes in somebody to to take her to the airport, but it turns out that there's a darker side to this person as well. There's some really good... I mean, he did some really good stuff. Uh, but I think some of it passed people by because it was too dramatic. Yeah. You know, people and didn't realise that's what he, he could do and he was yeah, good at it. Yeah, absolutely. You think about the fact that he was in Jonathan Creek. Was he? Yeah. Blimey. Yeah, he was in two episodes. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, he stole both of those episodes. <laughs> uh, he was in The Bill yeah. as well. God. He was in loads of... There was, bits, there was a time where he would just pop up in things where you're like, why is Rick Mail in this? This is very odd, right. but it, but it kind of works. Um, yeah, there's just odd bits. The more I think about Man Down, the more I think how brave it was of Greg to share a screen with him because you can't win, can you? No. You he didn't have to say anything. No, absolutely not. And uh, one of the directors I spoke to, he said... 
there's a scene in the first series where he has to throw a bucket of water over Greg when he's in the bed. Mm. And Rick was like, I'm just going to do it. He said, no, no, you, you've got to wait until I do the count because otherwise the, the cameras are not going to be... He said, no, no, I'm just going to do it. And he said, we got into a full-on slagging match about why he can't just do it, basically. He said, we went hell for leather at it. He said, so we set it all up and he goes, right, one, two, and then Rick throws the bucket of water. Of course before, he does. Of course he does. And he said, fortunately at this time, I'd already got the cameras rolling because I kind of knew and it worked really well because Greg's reaction that's in the show is actually what happened. Yeah. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And also Rick would have had a little bit of a fury behind him to propel that water through the air. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine. Yeah, that uh, anarchic side was still still there when he was filming Man Down. Good. Glad. So sadly missed. Um, how do people get hold of this book? Uh, it's available from all ebook providers, um, you know, good ones and bad ones as well. And if you want a physical copy, ooh, uh, we should say that. <laughs> we haven't done that tonight. <laughs> hey, how are you going to sign these? You've got a hard act to follow. Oh, that's a good point, actually. I have been signing a few, I have to say. and put Love and, and violence. <laughs> I've been trying to think of really good lines and I've been putting bottom quotes in some of them and then I'm thinking, I hope they get the quote. Otherwise, I've just put you vast slug in it for no reason. Um, <laughs> They'll get it. They'll yeah. get it. Um, but yeah, if you want a physical copy which got all the pictures in it, it's currently available on lulu.com which is a print-on-demand service. Brilliant. So, yes. Uh, can I tell one story just quickly? We're kind of out of time. Okay, fine. You, tell you what, you can hang on and do one after the news. How okay, about just one story. That's can it. you stick around? Yeah, We're not of course. Yeah. All right, well, let's do that. Oh, three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Jackie, I can see you wrong as well. We'll get a speech after the news. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Not just me, though. I'm here with Mark Serby, who's written a brilliant book about Rick Mail. Comedy Genius, it's called, and you can get it from all good online ebook retailers yes. and lulu.com, which yes. will print it out to, to order. Um, there was another story you wanted to tell us before you go. Yeah, uh, it's a brilliant story. I met Robert Llewellyn uh, from Red Dwarf fame uh, about 18 months ago and said to him, I'm writing this book about Rick, you know, and I know that you had sort of had a slight interaction with him. Um, would you be interested in being interviewed? He said, oh, I can't do it now at the moment, uh, but, you know, let, let's exchange numbers. And, and it, it didn't happen for whatever happened. Mm -hmm. for, but he told me a story there and then, and he said, when I was first starting in comedy, he said I, was, I joined a comedy troupe in Islington. And he said our first gig was at uh, what is now the Academy Islington. And he said, oh. so for two weeks we practised this uh, piece where it was like singing and dancing numbers and jokes and whatever else. He said we practised and practised and practised till we got it down perfectly. And he said then on the night we did it, it was fantastic. He said it went so, so well. He said I was so pleased. He said and then in the next breath Rick walked on and said, right, who wants to see my penis? Oh, and he said it got a bigger laugh than our entire thing. And that is working with Rick May. <laughs> now, the penis thing was it was a bit of a, a motif, wasn't it? Through a lot of his uh, yeah. live act in particular. Yeah. Ian tells a story about going to see Bottom with his mum. Uh, and he was too young to go and see it, really, but it only kind of became obvious after the first ten minutes, and they, there was a lot of swearing and, 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 and knob gags and, and an actual penis. Yeah. But his mum sort of went, well, we're here now. And you had a similar experience, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, the, the first Bottom... Uh, live show I went with my mom uh, and you know it was like we'd already seen Bottom uh, the first series we're like yeah this is really fun and then we went to see it and I think my mom was probably the same as Ian's mom where you're like well we're here now but the first moment when you see Rick on stage for that first live Bottom show he turns up and he's got a sex doll down his pants right okay. and you think <laughs> there's the tone uh, set okay I'm, I'm just about 13 years old I'm not going to get any of these jokes at all but oh my <laughs> goodness it's hilarious isn't it brilliant let's have a quick word with Jackie who's been waiting 
waiting very patiently. Hey, Jackie. Oh, hi, good evening, Kath. No, just listen to the whole Rick Mail thing. I've just been laughing my head off. My earliest memory of watching him on the telly, I don't know if you've mentioned it earlier on, was his Kevin Turvey. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I can do it. I, I still do the impression. Go on, let's hear it. Hello. Hello, my name's Kevin Turvey. I'm an investigative reporter. <laughs> <laughs> he just got me from that moment with his spiky hair and he's sitting in the chair doing his, his thing with that. But Kevin Turvey was the first thing and I was hooked from then on. Yeah, I'd watch him in anything. And, you know, from what yeah. Mark said, some of it is a bit crappy, but you'd still watch him because it's like spending yeah. a couple of hours in his company and he seems like great fun. You know, it was great yeah. fun. I think you still get some of it on YouTube, but, you know, just to go back and watch it again when he first came on and said that, and I went, oh, this fellow's just brilliant. I just love him. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the book as well. I'm, go I'm definitely going to look that up. Make sure you do. I'm going to have a, a read of it and I'm also going to have a look at his autobiography because I hadn't thought to read that for some yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've never read that one. No, 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 I need to do that as well. I like I've got a homework sheet from tonight, yeah. <laughs> so have I now. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely day about all the stories. Well, that's been a, it's been a really good uh, start to the evening. Oh, thanks very much, Jackie. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks for ringing. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. And with that, I think we've got to close the old uh, curtains on the Rick Mail stuff. Oh, that just sounds. Oh. It's really sad. That's, isn't it? that's sad. Here's yeah. the thing, right? You talk about all the brilliant things, and so many people have got loads of brilliant memories of him, private things that they he wrote in books. And uh, yeah. I remember there was a thing circulating again on Twitter about uh, someone had applied, uh, written to him, and asked him to write a best man speech, and he'd written, you know, that he does, he was a lazy you know what, and uh, he had no right to do any of this stuff, and he was hilarious, Just and, and told him to F off. But that's what people wanted. Yeah. A little bit of that. Irreverence. Yeah. yeah. Anarchy. Yeah, but who have we got now? Well, that's a very good point. There's a lot of T-shirt comedians out there, is what I would class them as. Yeah. They're all in T-shirts. They all do the same jokes. You're like, I, I literally could not pick most of them out in a lineup. but you think about alternative comedy and when Rick was around. And that's around, not us just being old farts, is it? I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm a youthful person. <laughs> no. no, but like, you think about the time when Rick and Alexi Sale and Nigel Plano were coming through and they were really aggressive and they were really going for the jugular, not just for you know the, the government, but in terms of comedy. Yeah. And if you went to see them, you were getting picked on. It didn't matter. Um, but it was also quite irreverent as well, and it was all new. And as I said, at the time, people didn't classify it as stand-up. It was alternative cabaret. It was a very different time, and we need comedians to push the boundaries, yeah. and unfortunately... And do stuff that doesn't work necessarily. Yeah. Do, actually, do TV companies have the patience for that anymore? Probably not. Probably not. The thing is, though, you know, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, that didn't work at the time. It was binned off after one series. Mm -hmm. But if you watch it now, it works now because basically Rick is playing a character who has no talent whatsoever, but he's on TV. Now, is that not modern times? Yikes, yeah. Yeah. You know, and then there's the bouncer as well, which is Aid Edmondson, and then there's his agent as well, played by Nigel Planer as well. So, you know, I, I watch it now and I'm like... This is perfect for now. Yeah. It didn't work then, I can see why, but now Well, because people wanted Lord Flashheart or someone coming and pulling his pants down, didn't they? Well, we can get that as well, can't we? <laughs> <laughs>
thankfully we can well, that, back, that back catalogue is amazing and I'm, I, as I say that's a rabbit hole I'm about to go down and uh, in a big way brilliant thank you so much Mark and thank thanks you for, for having this. me I love your obsessions I love the fact that because we met through uh, your Pacino obsession you did, yes. a, you did a film night I'd never seen that film before incredible incredible dog day afternoon dog day afternoon yeah completely unexpected for that time incredible yeah um, and, you know, your passion for films and for, for entertainment is something else. And I really appreciate your attention to detail. This is great. Can I keep it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Thank you very yes. much. I want you to write something really rude in the front of it for me as well for you, go. Okay, I better do it off air, though. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's Mark Serby, his book Comedy Genius, available through all good e-book retailers. Make sure you get a copy. Uh, great mail, God. We all miss him, don't we? 0344 1000. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Wasn't that glorious? God, I really miss Rick Mayle. Never, someone I never knew, never got to meet. He would have been a hoot. You just know it. And I, I'm so delighted. You know when you hear someone's written a book about a hero of yours and you think, please, please, please don't let there be anything cruddy in there. Please let him be as wonderful as I think he is. And it sounds very much as if that's the case with Rick. And I'm trying to think of other people who um, have that kind of charisma, that universal charisma. And I can only really think of Jeff Goldblum is that cool. Although I know some people who think he's a bit creepy. I love Jeff Goldblum so much. Now, there's someone I have met, and it was flipping brilliant. Right, so what are we going to talk about for the rest of the night? We've got loads, right? We've got um, people who are chances, and you absolutely love it. I'll, I, you know, the fact that they're sort of punching up, and um, I'll tell you about that in just a second. But also, uh, the police force that wants you to grass on your neighbour. Um, and this is an interesting sort of moral question. I know you like getting your teeth into this, so have a think about this. 0344 499 1000, of course, the number to call. And uh, you don't have to talk about any of this stuff. You can talk about whatever you feel like, as you well know. Uh, Penguinland, by the way, thanks for your tweet, saying, I'm hoping the first hour of tonight's show is going to be available on podcast. I know people would love to hear the Rick Mail stuff. Of course it is. I'm the one that makes a podcast, so I'll make absolutely sure of it. Um, so according to the Daily Star... Cannabis is the country's most commonly used illegal drug with 30% of British adults. That's around 10 million of us having tried the drug at least once. So it wouldn't be the greatest surprise if you've noticed the drug's recognisable smell in your neighbourhood, right? Many of us choose to live and let live, but if the odour of cannabis is a problem for you, or if you think the drug's use is linked to wider criminal activity, what can you do about it? A police spokesperson told the whole Daily Mail... And of course they're going to say this. The possession of cannabis is an offence and will be dealt with by police. She continued, it is a widespread issue across the county and we are focusing our resources to tackle those connected with the cultivation and dealing of the drug to help crack down on the issue. We'd encourage anyone who suspects drug activity in their community to contact us. The spokesperson added... Your identity, of course, will be protected if you tip them off. She said police would never give away a caller's identity, adding we wouldn't say information has come from a neighbour. That narrows it down. We'd just say we've received calls about it. She added that officers on the beat might also patrol a particular area based on a tip-off. If they were to notice the smell of cannabis coming from one particular house themselves, they may knock on the door and broach the subject that way. She added that people could also call Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 if you wanted to remain anonymous throughout the process. The police spokesman said, 
that any penalty for the offender could depend on a number of things, including the amount of cannabis and whether someone's got any previous convictions. And warned that while you could also inform the person's landlord if they were renting, the landlord is not bound to keep your identity a secret in the same way that police are. As long as the tenancy agreement's been drawn up properly, anyone growing cannabis will be in breach of it. However, you also need to remember that there are limits on what a landlord can do. Um, would you grass on your neighbour? Would you? Um, 0344 499 1000. On this matter or anything else, I've been in a situation where, in my first flat, our neighbours were obviously massive stoners, right? And we shared a connecting... Um, corridor between our flats and sometimes walking through that there was a little bit of a fog going on I'm, I'm not going to lie and you get to your door and think I need to have people lie down um, but they did no harm I'm not going to grass them up unless right here's the thing that would make me think twice if I felt threatened by it didn't feel threatened by it if I felt that people were hanging about that um, might do damage to me or my kids or my property or whatever maybe but for the most part you wouldn't grass, would you? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. There'll be someone listening now who has felt that they had to, and I'd be really interested to hear your story. No judgment whatsoever, because I know you don't do that for no reason. And also the thought process of are they going to find out it was me? That's going to make things really difficult and potentially dangerous. How do you work it out if you feel like you've got to get the police involved with your neighbour? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. That's the heavy one potentially, or it could be a funny one. I don't know your story. Tell me it. Um, but this one really did tickle me, this story. Um, and I've done it before. When we worked at Three Counties Radio, there was a Singsbury's, I think in Aylesbury, right? Have you heard this one? It's brilliant. A shop owner may be getting a call from Sainsbury's lawyer, says the Mirror. I dare say if you've printed it, they're definitely going to get a call at some point. After calling his business Singsbury. Mandeep Singh Chatter's off-licence has become a tourist attraction in Wolverhampton after he erected the sign in orange lettering. Customers apparently have been lining up to take selfies outside his Singsbury's local that some say looks a lot like a Sainsbury's. But the former sandwich delivery driver Mandeep, who's 34, in case you wanted to check his age, insists there is an innocent explanation saying, I decided on the name because my name is Singh and it's on Bushbury Road. It's just a coincidence. I think the nearest Sainsbury's is a couple of miles away, so it's not exactly close, and we are certainly not competition. I mean, the writing is the writing is exactly the same. I'm just a small business owner trying to make a living. People keep stopping their cars to take pictures with a sign, and I've had many nice comments. I've heard nothing from a supermarket which has a similar name, and I see no problem with it. It's a different logo, a different colour, a different company. It's completely different. It's not completely He's following the footsteps of a nearby business, Kent Tuck in Fried Chicken on Kent Street in Upper Cornwall, West Midlands. <laughs> Owner George Georgia received a demand from American fast food giant KFC to change the name when it opened in 1999, but he refused. How do you think that went? It's fine. Still got it today, apparently. Uh, Sainsbury's has been contacted for comment about Mandeep's shop. Grasses! Absolute grasses. I think this man should be praised for, for just sheer brass neck. There is a shop on the way to my grand's when he's going to see my grand in Manchester called the Teco Express. Again, very, very similar liv livery. And no one would have thought it was the other place. No one would have thought it. You just know that it's someone chanting their arm. Fair play, right? That's what this, I mean, that's what this country's got, isn't it? A sense of humour. We all know what the score is there, surely. 
0344 499 1000. Um, if you've got any more of those shop names that really, um, I mean, they're, they're chancing it. Give us a shout. 0344 499 1000. You can tweet at Talk Radio or you can text 87222. Just remember to start your text with the word talk and your text will cost 25p plus your standard network charge. You can tweet me at Flippin Kath or um, or uh, at Talk Radio. I'm sorry, I'm just slightly distracted by uh, the name of um, one of the um, correspondents on Twitter, which I can't read out, but thanks for your message, Ted. Saying that was great fun, wish it could have been a four-hour show exclusively about Dr. The Rick. I know! One of those people that everybody, everybody likes, isn't he, Rick Mayle? Can you think of any more? Give us a shout with that one. Okay, well, um, the phone lines are open, but it would appear you're all having a little... Um, you're all having a little nap. That's cool. That's fine. Um, you know these kind of new age ideas of how you um, put things out into the universe if you want to get something back? I think it's called the law of attraction. Wasn't it um, Noel... What's his name? Noel Edmonds, who did that cosmic ordering thing. I think it's a similar principle, right? Apparently, it's real. See, in the olden days, it would have been called wishing. But now it's cosmic ordering. According to the Mail Online, the law of attraction does exist. I'd be really interested in speaking to you if you are the sort of person who writes out kind of a plan. This year I'm going to, and maybe it's a five-point thing, and it's kind of a wish list. Does it work? Because at this point I'm willing to try anything like that. Uh, the law of attraction does exist, um, and it's not me saying that. The neuroscientist behind this article is about to reveal six steps to training your brain to manifest success, including, here's the thing, believing you are wealthy, no matter how little you have. Okay. Okay. An expert has revealed how you can combine science and positive thinking to achieve your goals, according to Daily Mail Online. Neuroscientist, life coach and psychiatrist Dr. Tara Swart, who teaches at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in King's College in London, so is kosher, explained in her new book, The Source, how six principles could be used in our everyday life to make things happen. Do you believe in that or do you think that basically we're all at the mercy of luck or bad luck sometimes? Uh, or is that too, is that even too supernatural for you? Is it just life, just a series of events and we're kind of all just feathers blowing in the breeze I think humankind has always wanted to believe that you've got some sort of control over life but is that just man's arrogance I don't know Neuros so this neuroscientist says um, six principles could be used in our everyday life to make things happen these are based on neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to change itself during adulthood according to Dr. Swart it is possible to rewire your brain or to change our attitude in order to succeed. She explains we can train ourselves to become the people we need to be in order to provoke positive change in our lives. And that statement brings me very neatly on to Alistair who's on the phone. Hey, Alistair. Hi, Catherine, how are you? I'm all right, it's thank fine you. Good evening. Yeah, I'm all right, I'm all right. It's always a little bit quiet after we have a really interesting guest, which makes you think, oh, do I get yeah. someone dead boring on next time so that we get, you know, the phone <laughs> lines are jumping by the time we finish. But I think we're all just a little bit sad when we realise that we've, we had Rick Mail and now we don't. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I watched so much of his stuff when I was a lot younger, the young ones, and 
that was the main one for me, the young the ones. The young ones. That was brilliant, yeah. And, and I saw other stuff as well. He was always very good. Yeah. Bless him. Uh, Billy Connolly, oh. I thought, would be um, ah. another person. Is this uh, the one with universal appeal? I mean, oh, I mean, I've... I, I mean, um, I've been absolutely in stitches watching him in his early concerts and on, ta- you know, on tape and stuff. Uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant comic. Um, different to Rick, but uh, brilliant. Tell you what, there is similar air of manic madness yeah. in his eyes, which is but, always very exciting. I mean, I think that I mean Billy Connolly's comedy for me came over as observation. And he could make any sort of normal-looking scene. He could take take elements of it and just convert it into complete laughter. And he had all the audience just absolutely in stitches. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, Rick sadly, sadly uh, died too young. Very much so. Such a shame. Such a shame. Right. But, you know, we sh- I suppose it's that whole thing of being glad that they existed in the first place, because what a gift. It sounds like I've got plenty to catch up on as well, because, yeah. you know, the bottom and uh, young ones yeah. is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you, you know, that you guys are you're talking there. That, I mean, I'm probably going to look up some of this stuff as well, because uh, I miss too much, probably I was too drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I will do. Wonderful. Um, what would Rick Mail make of your bathroom at the moment? <laughs> it looks like the set of Jack and Ori at the moment. Um, really? Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it, the, the builder did turn up today. Uh, yep. He brought a friend. <clears throat> the friend had to leave really? early because of a, a domestic emergency, which uh-huh. I believe, which I believe. It just seems to be the, the curse of the bathroom at the moment. You know, either no one turns up or someone turns up and has to leave. Something terrible happens. But do you know what? I am... Um, I'm fine. I am accepting that this is going to take a while. I'm lucky that my parents live around the corner and I can keep clean. It's all groovy. <laughs> I'm going to have a lovely bathroom at the end of it all and one that doesn't leak. Because to be honest, that one we had was about to come through the ceiling. So. It's funny though, because Ian went through this as well, didn't he, with uh, his builders, didn't yeah. he? That, uh, yeah. Leakages and all sorts of things. But my, our old bathroom was there when we arrived and we've lived in that house since before we got married so probably 13 14 years and that bathroom oh, was really? not new then it, it is leaking in all sorts and you yeah. know now we haven't got little babies our priorities are different you know we, we moved in and kind of were just coping with having little babies and there was no point in having a super swish house whereas now they're getting a bit older and and things are starting to crumble as well if i'm i'm, I'm, I'm absolutely honest so well, it's nice to have a great bathroom isn't it as well yeah you know, i mean it won't be great but it won't be leaking and that's it'll look yeah. nice um but it's nothing yeah. massively flash but um It'll be nice. It'll be nice to have something. We've got rid of the bath because we've not got little babies anymore. And when you've only got one bathroom, I don't think anyone's got time to luxuriate. So, um, you know, and the girls are getting older. So soon it's going to be heavy traffic through there. God, I'll be banging on the doors. I hope that it's sorted by the end of this week. It'll be be all right. If it it is, it is. I'm I'm quite zen about it. We were just about to start talking about, you know, whether you believe you can um, change your life by kind of wishing it and willing it and whether you can... And I know you've turned your life around and reprogrammed your thinking. 
Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is, I'm reprogramming myself to just be zen about the bathroom. Uh, it's a small oh, thing, yes, but it's yes, acceptance that there are certain things I can control and certain things I can't, and all I can control is my reaction to the uncontrollable at the moment. Well, you sound very calm. I am pretty calm, actually. Good. I'm also knackered. Yeah. Driving in, I was really tired, and normally that doesn't happen until I get oh, home. Yeah. But anyway... Anyway. But um, can I just mention about the, the drugs thing you mentioned? Yeah. Would you grass a neighbour? Well, no, I wouldn't. Um, the only time... Right, OK. I've got a very controversial view about the drugs thing. Go on. Because I'm one for decriminalisation like Portugal. I don't think it's outrageous to think that it will happen at some point. Well, I'm not sure that any government will do it because there'll be jumped upon by the mainstream media and that's what's caused them not to do it in the past so you might be right there might come a day where there might be a more um you know a better you know a more sensible view and mm. um, funny enough i watched a little bit of a program this morning on bbc one and this guy was saying look if you actually um give drug users care by the health system so you actually um, regulate the drugs through that, that 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 kind of route, then you would wipe out a lot of the drug gangs in a you know it, just in a, in a slash, because you know that's why they um, that's what they rely on mm -hmm. to to bully people and to get people in, get young young kids, you know, ten, eleven, twelve year old young kids to sort of transport the drugs. Mm. I mean, in terms of your original question, the only time when, you know, you might consider it if you think there's a, a, fact, a cannabis factory going on in the house. But then the problem there is that's a big risk, isn't it? Because of the probable people involved with it. Yeah, because the supply chain doesn't yeah. begin and end with a factory, does it? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I've never been... I've never had that experience of, of living near someone who used it. I did have a terrifying experience in Amsterdam when I was smoking cannabis all day. This was back in the 80s. And I got the uh, paranoia at 10 o'clock at night. Oh, God. And I had to stand in a pub corner for about an hour, and then I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is terrifying, actually. Yeah. But, you know... Uh... I think, bless them, and I know that the police have to say this stuff, but I don't think they're particularly bothered about, you know, occasional cannabis well, use, are they? Well, they haven't got any resources at the moment to no. do much. They're not going to send a they? copper to go up down sniffing streets. Not for single use, <laughs> not, not for self-use, no. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, but, I mean, I think it's... I don't know whether it's kind of a, a, a thing that the government are trying to push the... Um, things onto the public to say, right, can you help us out? Because we haven't got enough police. Can you help us out by reporting crime more often? Mm. Which is fine, but then there are always consequences to that, of course. And, you know, in probably in most estates where, you know, I don't want to stereotype, but there may be more drug use than perhaps in other kinds of areas. Well, it depends on the drug, people, doesn't it? Those, those people are going to be more scared about, you know, the people who run the estate and, you know, you know, the gangsters, not the gangsters, but necessarily, but people are in charge. Yeah. 
Because you've got to live there and you've got to exist there and, you know, there is a kind of pecking order that has to be abided by. Um, You don't want to be the one that sticks your neck out. Because you can't... Are the police really going to guarantee you 24-hour security? That's the fear, isn't it? That's the fear. If it gets out that it's you that grasped. That's it. Oh, man. But, you know, there are people who do stick their necks out and they feel justified to do so. And I'm not going to doubt that some people, you know, are frightened and feel like they have to do something before someone dies, whether it's them or someone else. Yeah. I mean, if, it, if it's... Was it just cannabis that they were this referring to? This particular example... The, this particular example is about cannabis use, which I think most people, you know, yeah. don't take as seriously as, as other things. I mean, I do sympathise with the view of a parent who's lost a child through drug abuse. Yeah. That may say, well, you know, cannabis is a gateway drug to harder drugs. But then then the debate gets more complicated then about then how how do you kind of prevent people from going to the harder drugs? And as I say, my my view is that you, you stop that by identifying them, giving them youth and social services to discuss it, and if necessary, referral to a GP to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway... No, you're right, and I've I've got a lot of sympathy with that view. Rather than sort of criminalising people that have got a drug problem, you should see it as a sort of mental health stroke medical issue. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, they're already too deep in to be abiding by the law anyway. Well, that's it, you know, I mean, it's like, um, I mean, it seems like the, um, in this this, uh, country that... um, I think, isn't this country the most number of um, closed-circuit cameras in, in certainly in Europe? Mm, I don't know about that stat, but it sounds likely. Yeah, and it's like um, we are being monitored very carefully. So, I mean, I, I just see that, that this is just a red herring that the papers put in to sell a few papers, maybe, I'm not sure. Quite possibly. You know, because my parents would would see would class cannabis along with all other you know quote unquote drugs with a big capital D as being you know something that will end up killing you. Obviously, yeah. you know. Do you mind if I ask you, Catherine? Did you ever I went, take part listen, in anything? Alistair, I went to college. I know exactly what it smells like. If that's what you're asking me. Um, <laughs> but I also know that you know, for the most part, people can partake with something like that and take it or leave it, and it doesn't necessarily lead to them yeah. shooting up in an alley. Yeah, I mean, I I did have a bit of cannabis that situation in Amsterdam, which I did not want to. After I came back from, so I didn't want to touch it. Mm. Um, and then I did have half an e-tablet once. Oh blimey, what was that like? Can't imagine you on that. It was. I just kept awake all night, and I didn't feel tired. I was, I felt quite good, but that was it. And then it, it wore off after a couple, after, after a day. It wore off. After a day? After a day of dancing? No, we weren't actually at any dance. <laughs> in pubs, of course. But I would, I would never go and I would never trust... Because I knew my own mental health and being a depressive and so forth. So I would never trust LSD because I didn't know what would well, happen. Well, here's the thing. That. Here's the thing. And obviously we can't advocate drug use or whatever, but we're having a grown-up conversation about it. And Yeah. And it's not without its complications, especially if you've got this kind of tendency towards mental ill health. And 
Ah, oh, man. Well, anyway, it's nice to hear you. Um, nice to hear you on the phone every every time you ring up these days. You've got words of wisdom to impart. You're an inspiration, Alistair. Oh, I came out of a meeting tonight. Oh, how was it? I always feel like uh, you know a little bit better mm. coming out of a meeting. Always feel a bit more inspired. I know, and I know we talk a lot about 12 steps, and some people listening to this will go, yeah, but I've not got a drug or alcohol or sex or eating problem. What has it got to do Still with me? Go. Do you yeah. know what? I, Russell Brand's book, Recovery, I read, yeah. in order to be a supportive mate to Ian, and I found a yeah. load in that that was really helpful to me. Yeah. Because everyone's uh, uh, got a thing they do to sort of self-soothe that isn't necessarily the healthiest thing. We've all got one. We've all got addictions, yeah. and uh, some have got more than one addiction and uh, mine was gambling and uh, alcohol and um, oh my god and the so two help I'm... each other out so much don't they <laughs> yes it wasn't i mean um, uh, terrible but uh, i mean if it, the best thing about it is for me to sum it up um because it's obviously you know it's 12 steps but um it makes you a better person than you were and that's brilliant. And that's why all the politicians should do it. <laughs> yeah, God, if only, if only. I just, I, do you know what I really appreciate? You know, working with Ian, talking to you, the self-awareness it gives you. Yeah. Hope Ian's better soon. He, he says he's coming tomorrow, hopefully. Well, that, that's the plan, but I've told him he needs to do what he needs to do, and um, there's no pressure yeah. on, on that from me. He knows I'll hold the fort. Um, I saw him today. I saw him today and we had a laugh, so... Oh, well, that's good. Well, send him my love and... Uh, and he's got food in the fridge as well, despite his protestations online yesterday. Hey, um, I was interested the other night. He mentioned he got a, a toast a toasty maker. Oh, yeah. What call them Breville's. Yeah. Well, I got one as well before Christmas and uh, it's a useful thing to have. Oh, my God, taste sensation. toasty feels to me like a full meal. Yeah, and it's you don't have to brilliant. put a lot of cheese in it. You actually can't fit a lot of cheese in it, can you? It starts squelching Just take five minutes to do. It's brilliant. Beautiful. You're making me hungry now, Alistair. I'm going to say goodbye. All right, have a good show. <laughs> Thanks very much. Nice to speak to you. Bye. Thanks, Alistair. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call. Hey, Damo. Hey, Kat. What's going on with you? Oh, I don't know. Well, I'm okay. Good. I just wanted to... I just wanted to thank you for for being the most beautiful sound on the airwaves. Oh, blimey, Damo. You know how to spoil a girl. You are the most beautiful sound on the airwaves. And thank that's, thank that's you. That's unbeatable. That is incredible. <laughs> You're a good one, Damo. Uh-huh. How's your day been? Uh, it's been up and down. All right. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm coping. Good. I'm coping. Good. As we do, as we do. But, but yeah, you, you make it all the better. Thanks very much, Dame. I appreciate your kind words. Oh, three, four, 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 nine, nine, one thousand. Shut up, Sam, it's true! Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Thank you, Paula, for your uh, tweet about Singsbury's. She said, I'm sure I've heard this story before and it had a slightly different ending. Yeah, it did. Listen to this one. This is beautiful. This is, this is how to do PR, right? This is how to do it. A shopkeeper who claimed he was threatened with legal action after calling his shop Singsbury's has changed its name to Morrisings. 
Chelsea Singh Nagra's shop had no name for five years after he said Sainsbury's complained, the Northern Echo reported. He's now put up a new sign name in his store, Morrisings, in a bid to put his village of West Allotment, North Tyneside, on the map. A spokesman for Morrisings said the supermarket didn't mind. Beautiful. Mr Nagra and his com- customers obviously have good taste, so we wish him well, they added. See, that's... that's... That's beautiful. Don't you think? That's good PR. Mr Nagra, who commutes 50 miles from Stockton to the shop in Benton Road, spent £350 on the new sign, which he said was a talking point. I bet it was. It's just a bit of banter and fun. It's not like we get passing trade. We're not stealing customers from supermarkets, he added. Originally, when I was away on my honeymoon in 2012, I got a letter saying that Sainsbury's was threatening to take me to court. My family saw the letter and took the sign down because they were so worried. My customers kept saying I needed another sign, so here it is, and it's a bit cheeky. The shop had already been called Singsbury's for two years when Mr Nagra took it over from a family member in 2011. Sainsbury's has been contacted for comment. This was ages ago, so obviously they've not come back. Morrisings, beautiful. Thanks also for these. Oh, God, look at these tweets. They're great. Uh, there's people noticing shops on their way home who, who obviously, I don't know, maybe, maybe let's call it at best, it's a coincidence, right, what these shops are called. Harrison said, always uh, drive past this, past this place whenever I'm in Portsmouth. No idea how many how my man Ken gets away with it. It's called Ken's Fried Chicken and it's in the writing. It's red and white and it's in the writing of a certain well-known chicken shop, which I'm sure is just coincidence. Uh, Krista says, I used to pass this every morning on the way to work. Blackpool's famous Ken and Terry's soft scoop ice cream. Well done, Ken and Terry. Well done. Keep those coming. 0344-499-1000 is the number to ring. You can talk about that. You can talk about whether you believe um, that you can... uh, We'll continue with these six ways to dictate the course of your life. Apparently, it is possible um, to harness the law of attraction. I mean, it sounds like bullshine to me, but this is a neuroscientist, so let's see what she's got to say. First of all, though, let's see what Dean's got to say. Hey, Dean. Hiya, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. What brings you to my door? Brilliant show, as always. Ah, oh, thanks. Well, I was just saying, uh, you were talking about cannabis. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, disabled in a wheelchair now for, what, 15 years? Yeah. And I use cannabis every day um, because I, well, um, yeah, I get it illegally uh, because um, the new stuff that they're, they're giving people don't actually work on a lot of people. Right. You know, I'm not spaced out. I don't get spaced out. I have uh, two cigarettes a day. And that that really helps me with my pain. So what do you think about this idea that, you know, certain police forces are asking neighbours to to grasp? I really do. I think it's... You know, I know that we're the... I think the biggest country... Yes, we are. Uh, We have more CTC uh, cameras in this country than the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's a fact. Also, the Metropolitan Police are trying to bring in these face recognition cameras as well now. Mm. You know? And I think it's just, let's, let's, let's not bother with the police, let's just do it all ourselves. Well, that seems to be the idea, although I think asking a neighbour to, to dob on a neighbour is something no, else, I, isn't I it? I think that's wrong. I do think it's totally wrong because somebody's going to get seriously hurt. I think... Do your neighbours know? Do your neighbours know? And, and, and you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these gangs and things like that, they have no moral scruples whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and somebody's going to get hurt, and when that happens, are they going to be that quick to say, "Oh, 
where they shouldn't have tackled them on their own. Mm. No, just by reporting it, they can get hurt. Yeah. You know, so I I wouldn't, you know, in my position, you know, I live, unfortunately I live in quite a, quite a village in Oxfordshire, um, and uh, it would take some to get to, up, to, up to my property because I have an apartment on the third floor. Right, okay. So, you know, and I've only, you know, there's no other entrance uh, uh, coming up, you know, um, to my apartment. So it's but not like you, you don't share a floor with someone else that would notice no, no, the smell? No, no, um, And the, 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 my own stairway as well. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, nobody can come in the bottom door. Right. Um, without, because I've got uh, CCTV cameras on there anyway. Um, purely for my safety, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because there's, there's an automatic door locking system on there and everything, you know. Um, because I did feel a bit fearful once when I left it open by mistake and somebody was up on my landing. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, I got a bit worried and I'm afraid I had to go for my baseball bat, you know. Well, listen, I'm going to be honest. When I lived in a ground floor flat, I didn't always feel the safest. You know, my bedroom was right next to the front door. You could hear people coming in and out. And if someone had got in, I mean, you're kind of all trapped in there together, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's only happened once. And I was advised then uh, by the police to put CCTV cameras up. And I said, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, What are you going to do if I put them up then? Um, Well, we'll just go and get a... If something happens, we'll just come and get a print from you. Oh, God, right, so it just becomes evidence, it's not... Yeah, it just becomes evidence, yeah. God. And, um, you know, it's, it's terrible, really. And it's, it goes on to something, you know, I've got a secure garage, um, and somebody broke into it and uh, smashed all the windows on my car. You know, um, I called the police, five days later they turned up. This is the point, though, isn't it? Them straight away. This is the point, right? That they, if there's no risk to human life, of course you're not going to go to the top of the pile, are you? Absolutely not. But you expect somebody within five days mm. just to call around and say, "Is everything all right now?" You know, or, or you know, "Is there anything else we can help you with?" Or whatever, you know. Yeah. What do you think was behind that? Was that just a random attack, or do you oh, annoy yeah, someone? Because uh, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's. It goes on to the main street, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. And it's on its own. And, um, okay, I've got lights on it, security lights on it now, so... But I didn't at the time, you know. But I sh- you shouldn't have to keep putting security light and cameras up everywhere, no. you do. And listen, I know it's just stuff, right? And it, you can see... For, if it's not your car that's been vandalised, you just think, well, it's just people being brain... Uh, you know, being uh, mindless and just being thugs. But... That is uh, that's an infringement on your property, and you don't know what's behind it, and you don't know whether they're going to come back, and your, your right, mind yeah, ticks I, over, doesn't it? Of course, the police, they, they said to me, do you think it's um, a, a hate crime? I said, what? Why? Are you being disabled? Wow, okay. I said, well, nobody knows I'm disabled, unless they break into the car and see us. Uh, I've got no stickers on the car. I only have my... Um, my, uh, you know, my badge that I put up, my yeah. blue badge. Yeah. Um, but then that's taken indoors at night uh, because there was a spate of people breaking in and taking them, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it looks to me that if it's just a, a small crime, they're, they're just not going to bother anymore. 
No, well, but also I can kind of understand the other side of it. If there's not enough people, if there's not enough manpower, exactly, they have to prioritise, don't they? See, I mean, this is the big, big con of this particular government. They're giving 20,000 20, police officers back that they took away. Mm. It's not extra. They took them away. And this is what people don't realise. Well, I think people do realise, but I can't believe they try, continue yeah. to try to push that line even when they were found out, you know. Yeah, they still, they still did it, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they still pushed that line. Give us the police officers back and give us a few say, more, then that's extra. Yeah, they say 20 thousand nurses. Hang on a minute, we're 45,000 short. Mm. So how can you have 20 places when you're including the people they're already who are on maternity leave yeah. and people like that? So they're already employed. I know, I know. It turns out there was about 5,000 that they were putting up forward. You know, it's, it annoys me a little bit when they don't tell the truth. Well, I mean, I brought my children up, to be honest, uh, and, and courteous, you know, and all that. And I'm afraid, uh, my, my, my daughter said to me, uh, now Boris Johnson's got their all morals are gone, haven't they? Well, some people think that. Some people think he's the best thing since sliced bread, you know. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm not a Remainer, and I'm a hard Remainer. And I, I actually would have leaned more to the, to the leaving, it, it, but I didn't. I voted to remain in the end. It came down to my postal vote, you know. Mm. And um, the reason I done that is because I've got a son and two grandchildren living in Germany. Mm. And uh, under the European medical card, I can travel and book a hospital bed if I need one. Yeah. Um, and they charge the NHS. Yeah. But now I have to get, if I want to go and see my son... I got three quotes the other week to go to Germany in June. Uh, one was £700 for a week because they don't know whether I'll be going into hospital or not. They don't, they're not taking that, that guarantee, you know what I mean? It was that for insurance you're talking about? Yeah, that's, uh, how, uh, you know, travel insurance and health insurance. Blimey. £700, yeah. And I said, well, what's that for? Well, just in case you have to go into hospital. Blimey. I said, but what happens if I don't? Do I get my money back? not the way it works, no. is it? They said, no. I said, well, you know, that's a bit of a rip-off, isn't it? Are you going to go? No. My son's coming over. I'm paying for them to come over. Actually, probably works out cheaper, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, um, I, booked, um, I booked their flights the other day, and uh, for the four of them, um, it was just under 200 quid. return Because wow. I booked it well in advance, you know? Okay. Well, look, enjoy them coming over. It's a shame it's worked out oh, that well, way. Yeah, lovely listening to you, Kat, and hope uh, Ian gets better soon. Yeah. And um, I love listening to your show every night. Bless you. Thanks very much for ringing, Dean. It's nice to hear your voice. Let's have a quick word with Richard. Hey, Richard. Hello. You're on. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm firing up if you're still talking about it. I can still uh, talk about whatever you want. <laughs> oh, Ricky Mail. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I'm... 49 in a couple of weeks, um, so I kind of got sort of introduced to him, if you like, sort of uh, the very early 80s, and I kind of remember him being, I'm sure uh, the programme's called A Kick Up the 80s, right. when, he was, when he was Kevin Turvey. All right, my name's Kevin Turvey, you know. <laughs> yes. And uh, he had a different subject every week, but everyone was hilarious. And uh, the next time I saw him was, I don't know if you remember, Jack and Ori used to be on. Uh, yeah. 
And he did a, a couple of episodes, Jack and Ori, see, and that, he was just so wacky. It was brilliant. He did George's Marvellous Medicine, and I was just the right age to watch it as well. But <laughs> yeah. we were just talking to Mark Serby, who's written a book about him, and he says that that kind of caused him to be blacklisted from um, Jack and Ori for years because they were furious that he'd sent out this irresponsible message. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, to be honest, me and my sister did reenact that. Mum was like, my bloody shampoo! Will you stop making Marvellous Medicines, please? But... <laughs> You know, it was a joy, and I think it gave quite um, a staid, bit boring format. I didn't really like Jack and Ori before that. No, no, it, it gave it a kick up the jacksy, didn't it? Yeah, and uh, which is quite apt that I said a kick up the eight. I'm absolutely sh- well. I'm you did. I've just, I've just looked it up. 1981 to 84. Kick up the 80s. Uh, yeah, K- Kevin Turvey. Robbie Coltrane was in it. Tracy Ullman, Richard Stilgo, Miriam Margulies. Rick yeah. Mayle, Ron Bain and Roger Sloman. There was a lot of people became very big overnight yeah. with that thing. Tracy Ullman went massive in America, didn't she? Oh, she never looked back, did she? I don't think she came back, no. And, well, yeah. I think she might come back with an American accent. <laughs> I think she did a bit, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was very young. Uh, just sort of... If you kind of remember those days, uh, there was... Well, Everybody can say it at a certain age, but there was a hell of a lot of negativity. I mean, especially, it was, we had this nuclear thing hanging over our head about, uh, there was lots of um, public information, uh, things put on the television about or what to do in a nuclear war, and uh, and not just that, people, if you fall into a canal or hit a pile, and it was very scary. Yeah, yeah, it was grim. It was, it was extremely grim. And then all of a sudden, something like the young ones came on. And it was, what? <laughs> you know, it was silly, it was wacky, but it was also so different to, yeah. you know, the good life. And I know they <laughs> represented them once in there. Or Terry and June. It was, what? This yeah. is speaking to me now. Yeah, it didn't go by the usual rules of comedy, which was, here's a nice, safe environment, and this is what's going to happen, and it'll all be good in the end. Yeah, and um, we wasn't that well off at my house, so we didn't have a video recorder, but across the road where my nan was, my uncle, who was only four years old, he was into the young ones as well. Yeah. And we used to, I used to run over there uh, every weekend to watch it on, which he taped, you know. Yeah. And uh, How old were you, Richard? I'm trying to work it out. Well, I was born in 71. Right. So I suppose I would have been about 10, 11. Right, okay. So that humour is 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 a 10, 11-year-old boy's humour, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it certainly kind of had an effect on the way I am today. Uh, as in, you know, you can sort of make a laugh out of anything, really. Yeah. Or, or I suppose some people could call it so. I mean, I can still remember my dad or my nan or my grandfather, you find this funny, dear. <laughs> But the more they said that, the more I found it funny. Exactly, because it wasn't for them. Terry, They can have Terry and June and the good life and all that stuff that came on on a Saturday night or a Sunday night when you knew it was time to go to school in the morning. But this was yours, and actually you were glad they didn't get it. it, it yeah, exactly. Um, my dad was a, a bit kind of like that uh, chap out of competitive dad. Oh, he really? Was, yeah, he was a bit scary, so he was scared if that was on while he was around. But uh, the other ones kind of just put up with it, you know. Uh, but and not just that, as he went further, you know, to um, the new statesman with Alan Bastard and um, 
you know, when he finally... (coughs) Oh, and Blackadder as well. Yeah. With those couple of appearances. But he wasn't even in it that much, but he soon made his mark, didn't he? Yeah, and I remember watching a documentary on Blackadder and Stephen Fry had a bit to say and uh, all these other, you know, comedians that was around that time. And they said it was a real risk. Yeah. Uh, well, because... Mark Mark was telling us that, because I didn't realise the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, but they didn't know what he was going to do when he first came in as Flashheart. He came blasting <laughs> in, you know, and there's sort of <laughs> pyros and stuff, came blasting in, and you can see it, and I'm going to watch it again. Apparently you can see Stephen Fry standing back with a big grin on his face, like, watch him do his thing, isn't he magnificent? <laughs> and Miranda Richardson's face is kind of, oh, my God, what is this? Yeah, because even... The- there was a kind of a script. He just ablibbed all the way through. <laughs> and just because he is so wacky and berserk, they didn't know what they were going to get. You know? But that was part of the charm, wasn't it? That sort of devilish, unpredictable, yeah. anarchic thing. I found it a little bit frightening at times when I was really little. I've got to be honest. Mm. Um, I can understand that, but I think with uh, the riskiness with Blackadder as well. Let's take, for example, the first one when he was. Uh, Queen Elizabeth and stuff. Yeah. He goes, well, hey, you know. Woof! Um, it was, because it was so dry humour all the way through and quiet and, you know, um, Blackadder was always trying his little tricks up. And then all of a sudden, yeah. this explosion of just, <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, big blast of colour. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the second time in Blackadder's goes forth, no, sit down, Fritz. <laughs> <laughs> It was wonderful. He seems to be having a good time in any situation, no matter how dire the situation was, Flashheart, didn't he? Listen, yeah. I'm going to have to go, Richard, because we've got no, no, coming no up to the problem. news. Lovely talking to you. Hey, nice uh, to have your memories there. It was so lovely to speak to you. 03444991000, you're listening to Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Late night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. In your life, see a diver kiss his wife while the bubbles bounce about above the water. Come again. <laughs> Did you ever even ever in your life feel low? See a diver, diver, diver kiss his wife. We woe. Way beneath the ocean in the kingdom of the sea while the bubbles bounce about above the water. No, I've never even never in my life been low. See no diver, diver, diver kiss your wife. We woe. No kingdom of no sea While no bubbles bounce bounce above no water Well, if you're looking while they're kissing You recognize the sight of a diver, diver, diver That must be doing something right Way beneath the ocean in the kingdom of the sea While the bubbles bounce about above the water Surely, why do you say ever, ever, ever And rightfully no And diver, diver, diver And when you say white, you say we won't Why not say ever, ever, ever Well, why are they kissing in the ocean? In what kingdom of the sea? And why are bubbles bouncing about above the water? Well, beneath the ocean's private, and a kingdom is the sea. And kissing down there is going to bounce up bubbles naturally. So when you see ah, the bubbles bouncing, so... you recognize the sight of a diver, diva, devil must be doing something right. Way beneath the ocean in the kingdom of the sea, while the bubbles bounce about above the water. Did you ever Above the water. And did you ever, ever see a diver kiss his wife while the bubbles bounce about above no, the water? I've never seen and did you ever, ever see a diver, diver, diver in your life, Leo? Oh, 
9-9-1000. That's Shirley Ellis. Ever see a diver kiss his wife and the bubbles bounce along? I don't know what it's called. It's just brilliant. Uh, I love a bit of Shirley Ellis. Um, 0344-499-1000 is the number to call. We're talking about all sorts of stuff. Whether you dob on a neighbour, whether you've ever done that, and uh, the kind of thought process that went into it. Or whether you've ever been ratted out by someone who lived near you. That's another story I'd like to hear. 0344-499-1000. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, cosmic ordering, or what do they call it here? Let me see. They call it... Um, 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 let me find it. Uh, they call it... Uh, the law of attraction. And there are six ways, apparently, to change your life for the better in the future. Obviously, we're going to read it out before the end because we all need a little bit of a change now and again. Hey, Alan, thanks for ringing. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you, Alan, from Stoke? I'm all right, love. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for me today? Well, I was just listening to... Uh, I just I just got in my unit, actually, when I switched the radio on, and you were talking to that chap about police uh, wanting people grass on people about drugs and yeah. all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to live in a, an area where they used to use cannabis and all sorts of rubbishy drugs at one time, you know. Right. Um, at the end of the day, it's a plant. It's It's been here for years and years and years. And people use it for medicinal purposes. People use it for MS and all those things. You know, if they want to use it, it's up to them. I think for a lot of people, the attitude towards it is relaxed a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think if they legalised it, like they have done abroad, mm. you know, there wouldn't be any of this problem. You know, all right, the Class A drugs, forget them. But, you know, cannabis, it's just for, basically for chilling people out and they can, making them, you know, like like MS people, it helps them. Yeah. So I believe anyway. Um, I mean, I, my mother-in-law, she used it for uh, multisclerosis because she has got that. Right. Um, and she found it helpful. Yeah, 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 yeah. She found it very helpful. Um, all right, she's in her home now. She's got dementia now, mm. so it's you know it's she remembers things and then um, you know it, it did help her, but uh, it helped her with the walking you know because it, and then she lost the power of her inner legs, but you know it did help her to get her around. You know what I mean? What happened to him legalising it for for medical reasons? I thought that that poor little lad from the other year that I thought, thought they changed things. Well, they did change it, didn't they? they? They were going to change it for that little lad mm. who was uh, who'd got that. Um, I don't I don't know what he'd got anyway. They, but then, then I heard definitely that they they uh, stopped it. Then he couldn't get it. Then he was trying to buy. It, you know. See, what you I know, heard was they made it harder to come by than it sounds. You know, it sounded like they were about yeah. to relax the rules, but actually, it was it was still pretty difficult to get around them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so. At the end of the day, 
at this country, I don't think I don't think they know if they're coming or going or being. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, another thing. Go on. I used to watch. Lo- I used to watch Love Thy Neighbour, and I used to love it. Um, but now they won't play because it's precious. You know, I used to love that program. Do they not show it on some of the older sort of channels? No, no. Because I thought the justification it, was it they, they were supposed to be taking the Mickey out of prejudice. Well, that's what they were. They were, but uh, they were. I've I've looked through all the different channels, you know, UK Gold and all that. I've never come across it. I have to go on YouTube if I want it now. Right. Oh well, at least you can get it on YouTube. Does it still? Does it still stand up for you? Because it was a bit old fashioned for me. Oh, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it stands up for me. I mean, I'm probably, I'm probably like, you know, I like the the old things. What used to be. I mean, my granddad used to be sitting watching it with them, you know, and it'd be great, like, you know. Mm. But uh, the old programmes, I think they've still got some things going for them, you know what I mean? Well, do you know what? I, I get some of it, but some of it, I think, is... Here's something controversial. Only fools and horses. I'm not crazy about it. Well, it's just it's just two lads who have been out. They, they started out with nothing and ended up with a millionaire. Well, I know what it's about, but I also know it's been on bloody loads and I think I'm done. I, I think I've seen, I think I've seen every series what they've done. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's all right occasionally, but I think they put too much of it on, be honest with you. Yeah, I, I get that yeah. too. All right, Alan, where, where are you off to tonight? Uh, I'm uh, off uh, to do some delivering down to Tesco. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, it's not gold bullion then, is it? It's going to be, uh, what, bread no. and eggs? Bread eggs, whatever else is in the container tonight, yeah. So, right. well. I've just, I pulled over anyway so I could talk to you. You're a good one. Well, how's, how's Ian anyway? Is he okay? He's, you know, he's, he's having, he's, he's not feeling too clever at the moment, but I went to see him today yeah. and we had a la- we had a bit of a laugh, so... Yeah. Well, give my regards anyway. Tell him I'll speak to him when he comes back. I will do. He should, and, be, he should be back day, tomorrow, and, but we'll see. Yeah. And one day when I get some chance, I'll come down and see you two at one of these uh, evenings, what you have. Oh, blimey, that sounds like more of a threat than a promise. Well, it's a promise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Alan. Take care on your drive tonight, won't you? Okay, bye-bye. Nice to speak to you. 03444991000. Right, so let's work out how we improve our lives to the better. You can give me a ring. That would significantly improve my evening, of course. 03444991000. So this expert has revealed how you can combine science and positive thinking to achieve your goals. Right now, my goal is to have a bathroom that works. These are beta, right? So neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change itself during adulthood. According to Dr. Swart, it is possible to rewire your brain and to change your attitude in order to succeed. She explains that we can train ourselves to become the person we need to be in order to provoke positive change in our lives. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be bliss? Right, let's get some um, meditative music because this is going to be gold. This is going to change our lives forever. Never mind Dell and Rodney, this time next year we'll be millionaires. This is going to be the key. Right, let us uh, let me put in Zen music. Zen meditation music straight away. All right, let's have a bit of this. Uh, the first one that comes up. Oh, hang on, it's an advert first. That's not going to make me feel meditative. It's going to make me want to wait to press skip ads. Right, here we go. No, we're not having songs. Hang on. Sorry about this, everyone, but you understand we need to get this right if we're going to get harness the powers. Let's try this one. 
No, this is not right. Hang on. This is not right. Yeah, I've got another YouTube thing playing. I love Curtis Mayfield, but that is not the vibe we're after. This is the vibe we're after. Oh, yeah. All right, this is how we're going to do it. 2020, this is... 2020 lies before us, and we're about to grasp every single opportunity that comes. But also, we're about to create some. Are you ready, everyone? All right, let's do this. According to Dr. Swart... It's possible to rewire your brain, change your attitude in order to succeed. Are you ready to succeed? I know you are. I know you are. She explains we can train ourselves to become the person we need to be in order to provoke positive change in our lives. She follows the concept behind the law of attraction, and that is capital L, capital A, so this is serious business. The belief that positive thinking will lead to good things, while negative thinking will attract negative outcomes and argues that changing the way we think can have a physical impact on our lives. Sounds a lot like wishing, but let's crack on and see if it works. These six principles allow us to unlock what Dr. Swart calls the source, capital T, capital S, or the full potential of the brain, which she describes as the harmony between the cortex, which is responsible for higher thought process such as speech and decision-making, and the limbic system, which deals with emotions, memories, and stimulation. Stop that. One, abundance. Here we go. We're calling a Dr. Tara now, which makes it sound more like hokum, but bear with me. Dr. Tara describes abundance as the belief that there is enough of everything to go around. She defines it in relationships with lack, explaining that whether we believe in one or the other will have different consequences on our lives. For instance, those who believe in abundance will develop resilience through tough times thanks to the trust that things will get better. She believes they also exude generosity which is infectious and leads to human con connections. On the other hand, those who operate on the basis of lack will be primarily motivated by fear and tend to think in negatives. This is why she believes in adopting an abundant mindset is an essential part of the law of attraction. Okay, so you've got to believe that things will sort themselves out in time and that there will be an equilibrium that will be achieved just even if it's just a matter of time. Dr. Tara explains that often people stick to relationships, jobs or other situations they're not happy with because they fear being alone or they fear change as a whole. The reasoning is that fear is a strong emotion that occupies a large part of our brain and triggers through bad memories of past failures, red flags, telling us we need to run from risk, run from change. But a person with an abundant mindset is therefore more likely to be a risk taker. Okay, so... Sort of the sort of person who goes, do you know what? It'll be all right. Whatever happens, it'll be all right. Two, manifestation. Dr. Tara admits the concept of manifesting success through positive thinking has often been dismissed by other members of the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And she concedes that thinking of a good thing doesn't necessarily mean that will make it happen. Okay, so the cosmic ordering thing might be a load of balls. Let's read on. Instead, she explains that the manifestation is all about constantly trying to make our dream happen, however big it might be. It requires that we are true to what we really want and focus on this instead of chasing other goals. For instance, I'm glad there's a for instance because this sounds quite wishy-washy to me, but that might be just my dried up old heart. For instance, one could work hard to obtain a promotion and reach financial stability when the dream was really to retrain. 
So manifestation is about channeling your ultimate goal in everything you do. Scientifically speaking, manifestation works by literally breathing what you want. It's focusing all your senses on imagining it and visualizing it, what it looks, feels, smells and tastes like. So you might want to manifest a donut. Mine's a jam one. This, Dr. Tara explains, makes the dream more tangible in our brain, therefore more attainable. It also requires to slowly build the mindset and skills necessary to making the leap. God, we're only on three. Hang on a minute, let's, um, hang on, let's just pause in the zen moment and just have a moment of reality. Let's have, um, hello John in Warrington. Hello Kath, how are you? What happened? Um, basically I'm just, I'm just asking if I can have a little bit of a song played. Uh, um, it was ten years ago today that my grandma died and it was a favourite song. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. If you can play a little bit of it for me. What is it? Uh, Peter Sarstead. Where do you go to, my lovely? Oh, really? Okay. All right. Do you know what? As it's you, and as I'm on with Todd, and as it's your gran, let's 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 find that. Let me just turn the Zen music off because that's not going to help. See, um, she liked that song. I find that song a little bit creepy, but that's again, I've got a hard heart. (laughs) It's all. Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a French song that's been translated. You've got that kind of um, that kind of vibe to it. Let's have a go. I'm not going to... I will not rain on your parade any further. I'll just keep quiet. Thank you. All right, here we go. Oh, look at him with his moustache. He don't mind, does he? Right, here we go. Hang on, got an advert. Three, two, one. Here we go. Oh, please. Now. It's hard to find an original talent, but here is one. A man who is writing and singing some of the best songs around at the moment. With his latest, Where Do You Go To, My Lovely, Peter Sarstad. You talk like Molly and Dietrich, and you dance like Zizi Jarmere. Your clothes are all made by Balmain. And there's diamonds and pearls in your hair Yes, there are And you live in a fancy apartment Off the boulevard Saint-Michel Where you keep your Rolling Stones records And a friend of Sasha Distel Yes, you do But where do you go to, my lovely when you're alone in your bed Oh, won't you tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do Well, I've seen all your qualifications That you got from the Sorbonne And the painting you stole from Picasso Your loveliness goes on and on And when you go on your summer vacation You go to Joie-les-Pins With your carefully designed topless swimsuit You get an even suntan on your back and on your legs And when the snow falls you're found in Samoritz With the others of the jet set 
And you sip your Napoleon brandy But you never get your lips wet I know you don't But where do you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed Oh, won't you tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head Yes, I do Is this doing the trick, John? Beautiful. Tell me about your gran then. Absolutely beautiful. Well, she was real. Um, she brought me up most of my life, to be honest. Um, I lived with her. Had a bit of a troubled kid when I was when I was younger, so ended up with my gran from about fourteen. Um, so she was she was like my gran and my mum. Oh, bless her. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any sad memories of her. They're all good. Good. And obviously she's a sophisticated woman. That's a hell of a song. Yeah. I don't know about that, but <laughs> she loved the music. She loved the music. She definitely did. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing her with us just for a few minutes. No and before, before I go, Cass, you're yeah, a Manchester girl. Are you red or blue? I'm a what, what? Are you red or blue or not? Well, I mean, I'm not really bothered about football, but I'm in a red family. Well, that'll do, then that's made it even better. <laughs> Thanks very much, John. All right. Take cheers. care of yourself. No, no, bye-bye. 0344-499-1000 is a number to call. We had a couple of calls there, and it, um, uh, it seems to have dropped off. Jamie, why don't you ring up? Jamie's saying, can someone funny or female or both please ring talk radio, or is it a middle-aged man special? I don't know. This way. It's whoever rings up, for God's sake. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. It's like I'm turning women away or something. It's whoever rings up. First come, first serve. That's the way it works. Um, you can give us a shout. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. I will not be checking you for uh, for one thing or the other uh, before you come on. You can text eight seven two two two. Start your text with the word talk, and that'll cost you twenty five p plus your standard network charge. Or you can tweet at Talk Radio or at Flipping Cath. Damien's up next, but if you um, if you want to be uh, in 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 the show as well, it's, the time is now. We've got like. We've got like 30-odd minutes. And Jamie is clearly not happy with the standard at, at this point. Late Night with Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Oh, three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number to call. Hello, Damien. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. What you got? Good. Well, positive thinking, cosmic ordering, the law of attraction. What do you reckon? Uh, it, well, it might be... Controversial, but haven't we been doing this for thousands of years? As in prayer? Yeah. I don't know if I've only just caught the last hour of the show, so I don't know if anybody else has mentioned it. No one suggested it, but yeah, prayer, wishing, well, meditation, yeah. is it not the same yeah. thing? Well, I, pretty much, isn't it? I think we've um, packaged it into a very nice uh, sort of 21st century uh, marketable brand, if you like. Mm -hmm. Do you think it helps, um, though? I mean, people who believe in it. Yeah, I, I absolutely do believe in it. Um, it's just positive thinking, isn't it? It's what you bring, what you think about, you bring about. Um, you focus on positive things, they're more likely to to happen. If you focus on negative things, they're more likely to happen. With prayer, though, mm. it's it's um, less of a specific thing, though, isn't it? Really, generally, it's there is a certain amount of acceptance that someone knows better up above when you pray, isn't there? I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not religious, so I, I, I'm not completely sure. I'm not. 
See, this seems more prescriptive. With prayer, I think there is... There tends to be a, if you see fit to give me this, I would like, you know, and, and it doesn't tend to be, uh, you know, praying for a promotion. It would be, you know, I think people are a bit more humble in prayer, generally. I don't know. I'm not God. I've not received his, um, his in- I've not had a look at his inbox lately, but I would imagine... <laughs> That prayer I would is it's quite interesting. Yeah, but, oh God, uh, can you? Can you? He'd be like, uh, "Not you again, flipping it." Yeah, spam, spam folder. <laughs> that. Yeah. Wonder if there's people he's muted. <laughs> Constantly, I would think. I think he muted me a long time ago, but that's <laughs> fine. I'm doing all right. <laughs> I think you know. Is there something to be said for concentrating your mind, and whether that's meditation or prayer, but just thinking, right? What do I really? What do I really want? What do I really need in the next few months? Oh. Um, I'm not much for that. Oh, where's he gone? Disappeared. What the hell is going on? Oh, three four 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 nine nine one thousand. And we're trying to get him back. I don't know whether he's maybe he'd said his piece and disappeared, or or our phone line's playing. He's trying to stop us from uh, t- from touching the divine. Let's check. Hey, Damien, where did you go? Oh my goodness, he heard me, didn't he? It was so creepy. So someone decided that we were we we're getting too close to the truth. That you... Oh my goodness me, that was too so, too close for comfort. So how do you how do you kind of um, how do you go in for this stuff, or do you go in for this stuff at all? Uh, like any like anything, I, I observe it. I, I, I also step back from it. I'm I'm aware of it, but I I don't prescribe to anything particular. I don't dive into anything too do you deeply. Ma- but... Do you set yourself goals? I think we all set ourselves goals, don't we? We do. Um, whether we deliberately do it or not, we we all have intentions that we, you know, and and goals. I mean, even if that's just getting up in the morning and, and, and getting dressed, everything's a goal, really, isn't it? You know, to mm. achieve something in the day. Um, I, I think there's a lot of people now, they need this sort of thing. It's almost like um, they feel they need it, you know, the same with the mindfulness movement and everything. Yeah, it just become almost. Um, it's almost like a prescription, a little bit like a drug. I, I can only speak for myself, and I and um, I think that um, in a world that feels like it, um, where, where you feel pretty powerless, mm. it helps to believe there is something you can control. There you go, control. In a world where we have very little control over every, anything yeah. at all. Tell you what I found in my life, though. Every time I've aimed for something or gone out of my way and like written letters and can I can I do this? Can I do that? Never happened. And yet I look back on where I've come from and I realise that actually I can see a definite reason for having gone through each phase and it's led me to this point. And maybe maybe it was arrogant of me to think that I needed to plan. And uh, actually, what you need what you actually need to do is see opportunities and say yes to things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I don't like this idea of you just wish for something and, and then just sit back and let and, and do nothing and expect it to happen. I think there's a, you know, you've got to partake in it. You've got to, if, if you really want to achieve something, you've got to put your heart and your soul and your mind into it. Mm. And uh, and if it's the right thing, it, it probably will happen. And if it's not, there's, then there's the if, right? There's the if. Yeah. And some people no, will right. not let it go, even if it's quite clear that it's not for them. Absolutely, yes. But if it doesn't happen, if something doesn't happen, there's probably a reason for it. And just to accept that, because otherwise you could drive yourself crazy, couldn't you, wishing for 
things that never come true. Oh, there are so many people in this world who believe that they are destined for something else and they can't believe it's not happened for them yet and it's not fair. Meanwhile, yeah. I, I worry that, you know, other things are slipping past them um, yeah. because they've discounted them. It's very easy to become so focused on one thing. I heard this story about an Olympic athlete, actually, who strived all of these years to, to receive a gold medal. And then when they did that, they got no other goals. Yeah. And they became so despondent and, and you know, they had nothing else left to achieve. So it kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of spoiled the fact that they achieved such success because they've had no other goals left. Well, also, look at people who've achieved, for example, your Britney Spears, your Robbie yeah. Williams, um, people that achieve everything they set out to achieve at an early age. It's very rare, isn't it, for them to not go off the rails as a result, because what else is there to do? Once you've got all the things you wanted, once you've got the money and the fame and the opportunity to go wherever you want to in the world, what, 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 have, you got to, what have you got to strive for? Absolutely. Money gives them a lot of choices, but there's only so many choices in a life that you can make, you know, where, where, before you start making the wrong ones. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, I have I have listened to the audio book of The Secret and uh, other books by Rhonda Byrne, you know, The Law of Attraction and all of this. And I, it's interesting, but it's all the same. Really? <laughs> it's all the same. When you boil it down, it's just positive thinking, isn't it? Yeah, and does that mean that... You, because people think with cosmic ordering, you think of something very specific, and if you want it hard enough, it will, it will, um, it will transpire. Mm. But, but what this woman seems to be saying, and it is a little bit, I'm going to have to give it a bit more thought. But what she seems to be saying is that um, you need to concentrate on what's important and recognise things when they happen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I see that. It's like anything, though. If, you, if you're going to buy a new car and it just happens to be a red car, you'll see red cars for the, you know, for the next however many weeks until you get yours. Right. You, because you're aware of it. Because it's in your, it's suddenly come to the fore of your consciousness. Yeah. Rather than being in the back of your mind, it's jumped a priority in the queue, if you like. So you're more aware of it and they're more likely yeah, to see take it. advantage of it if it comes up. I guess. All right, Damien. Well, thanks for ringing. It's nice to speak to you. And you. Take care. This is feeling like one of those end of the night at the pub conversations, isn't it? I don't re Hello, Mark. Hey, Kath. Hey, what you got? Um, <laughs> I'm a bit late, but I want to talk about family. Good. Let's have it. Because uh, um, I was catching up on your show last week. Yeah. And um, on Friday, I was listening to Thursday's show, and mm -hmm. it was all about family. And uh, I wish I'd sort of called in and then um i was going to call in on friday but i bottled it that's all right it's never too late uh, so i just thought I'd, um i was up listening to the show just now and i thought i'd just call in oh, good. um about family because I, I was listening to lots of different sort of stories on thursday and um i thought i'd add my two pence where it's quite an interesting story if you Go like um a bit of a mix a sort of t two halves on, on the one side really really close lots of love and and um, quite a unique thing and then another part of it um or, you know a sort of a disowning aspect so the language is quite harsh but i'll just dive straight in um a little over six years ago my parents killed themselves oh god i'm sorry um, well no 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 don't be sorry it's the only way it's the only way of starting the conversation it was planned my dad was really really ill um cancer seven years um and so 
him and my mum basically chose when they were going to go. So, um, self-euthanization, I suppose. Okay. Um, and um, I knew about it, knew about it for a long, long time. And I was involved in sort of preparations, you know, for end of life and, uh, you know, getting their affairs in order. I wasn't there, you know, the actual moment when when it came. But I was um, I was there in the last sort of few days when my dad, you know, took a real bad turn. Um, and so having sort of known for so many years that this was coming... My dad was, had cancer for about seven years before he died. Um, I was really, really well sort of prepared for it. And, and also, you know, towards the end, this health sort of deteriorated. So he knew it was coming. And um, I uh, heard a lot of stories of, you know, not, on, not just on the show, but sort of, you know, in my life from people that I know who have parents generally you know, who sort of had this kind of slow um, decline and uh, and almost heartbreaking stories, really. Um, you know, listening to um, Fake Sheila as mm-hmm. well um, on Friday, you know, talking about her situation. And even though it's quite shocking, my story, and when I tell people that, I get a reaction you sort of gave me. I actually felt... Um, really lucky in a way and sort of quite blessed I never really had to go through years and years of you know watching someone that I loved um, in a state of sort of um, well let's just say in a state where their sort of quality of life was was that sort of diminished Um, and so that's kind of the one side of it and I love my my parents they were great parents you know and uh we talked sort of every day for the last few years. Um, very, very close. You know, it was a big, big miss when they went. Um, but I never actually needed to grieve for them after they went because I'd done all of that in preparation um, in advance yeah. in a sort of way because I knew what was coming. So when, when the moment of departure actually came, I was very, you know, calm about it, very, um, like I say, blessed in a weird sort of way, um, and sort of gave them my blessing kind of on their way. So that's kind of the one, that's one part of the story, if you like. That's incredible. Um, uh, and is, can I can ask you a few questions about that? Yeah, sure. I find it really interesting. Of course, everyone's reaction when you say you lost both your parents is, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Mm. And, and cancer's an awful, awful disease and yeah. um god you know it, it's it does terrible things to people but what from what you're saying the fact that they'd chosen the time and sort of method of their passing and then they were doing it on their terms while they were still able to make decisions um, yeah that was a huge comfort yeah yeah um well, the cancer that my dad had it was a rare form of lymphoma right so he had his faculties um really kind of right up until the last week. Um, you know, he had, sort of, he had a, a, a sort of debilitation, if you like. You know, physically, he would get sort of tired and like that, but it wasn't... I mean, there were many different types of cancers. This wasn't one that, 
you know, um, made him sort of bedridden for years and years. So right. he, their decision was as long as there was a quality of life, then they would continue. And as soon as that stopped, then they would go. And they didn't want to carry on without each other by the sounds of things? Well, <laughs> well this is the thing. Um, one of the things that people sort of ask me is, well, you know, you talk about your dad, and your dad just, what about your mum? Why, you know, why did she... Didn't, how do you feel about her doing that? Why didn't she stick around? I've got kids, and they were quite young um, at the time. You know, was it selfish of her to go, why didn't she want to stay around and see her kids sort of growing up? She, yeah, she was... Um, she was sort of so devoted and so in love with him that she, I mean, she literally couldn't see her life without him. I mean, you hear that phrase, don't you hear that phrase being sort of bandied around, oh, I could never live without him. I don't know what I would do, you know, without my significant other. Well, she literally couldn't um, to the point where she was prepared to go with him. And um, while she wasn't in brilliant health herself, you know, she... She wasn't. You know, she could have um, continued, mm. but she she didn't want to. Yeah. So they um, they chose the time and they wanted to be at home. Yeah. Uh, and they were at home. And um, he, in the sort of last week, when it got you know he kind of like fell off the cliff, if you like, in terms of the physical side of it, he, he was taken to hospital. And then when and I came, I went to visit. And then when we knew that. Um, you know, that was it. Then we discharged him and um, took him home. And I spent the last sort of few days at home with with them. Um, and then I, you know, because of the legal situation in this country, mm. uh, I left right. um, the day before, knowing what was coming, but just, you know, so that I wasn't there and there couldn't be any sort of implication or confusion um, about involvement, you know, I sort of left. But Is that the way you would want it? it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing, right, is I got to say everything I wanted to say to them before they went. I, I was not in a position where I, you know, having, having my parents die... I'm having to, you know, go through the rest of my life thinking, well, what if I'd only just said this or if I'd only just said that or, you know, I never got a chance. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had that opportunity to say all of those things, everything you could possibly have wanted to say. I mean, closure is, 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 a, is a sort of an easy word to kind of bundle it all up in, but um, it really is that. And um, I, I have not cried since they died, and that was over six years ago. Um, not because I don't miss them, but just because, um, you know, I, I, I said goodbye. And, uh, and I, I did all my grieving, you know, in, in a time when they were sort of alive, in a, in a weird way, um, over a long period of time. So when it actually came down to it, although it was a shock because it happened suddenly, relatively, you know, within about four or five days, 
um, his sort of physical condition, you know, kind of dropped off. Uh, and although it was sudden, it wasn't, you know, I was prepared for it, and so it wasn't a surprise. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions about that, but here's the thing. <laughs> the other side of the family, I spent my time, those last sort of few days with them, and my sister. And the so that's another story you may, you know, people may sort of find that quite a sort of quite a tight, loving um, story, I don't know, between between me and them. Well, I mean, you say that you haven't um, cried since they died, but you've just had me in tears because I think anyone who's lost anyone, and I've lost too many people recently and yeah. not had a chance to say all those things, that's yeah. such a special time. And what a special opportunity to be able to oh, do that and to know the time that you're going and to be able to make sure you get all that stuff out and that they're in, left in no doubt as to how much they mean to you. That's incredible. Yeah, and when I say, I sort of got to say everything I wanted to say, I don't mean in those last few days. I mean in the, in the you know, seven years yeah. previous to that when he was diagnosed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very, incredibly lucky. Very, very blessed. Um, I didn't have to see them suffer for years and years. I didn't have to see, you know, dementia sitting in or, you know, a nurse or no. you know, any of the other sort of really debilitating... You yeah, know, there was none of this. Um, you know, I remember being really struck with um, when my grandma, one of my, my first grandmother died when she was at the tail end of her life. And this was a proud woman who'd been a home help. She'd always been the person administering the care. And then all of a sudden, there's people coming in and asking her whether she's been to the toilet or not and using her first name when she really wouldn't have appreciated it and stuff and treating her like a baby. And I thought, my God, she would hate this. I'm, I'm just hoping that she's not as with it as, as she would have been, you know, three, four, three, four months before. I mean, there was a, 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 a very, very quick decline with her. Um, but it it hurt to watch it. It hurt to watch her being treated differently because she was such a dignified woman. Yeah, and wouldn't we all really? I mean, you know, we 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 would all not, wouldn't we all? We would all, given the opportunity, um, choose our own time. Yeah, if we could do it peacefully. I think so. And, uh, there, listen, there are some people with a strong faith who believe it's not their it's not their duty to, you know, it's not their right to choose. But I think there's oh, I no think one listening to this that I don't think that, that wouldn't be moved by, by that decision that they made and the fact you made it all together. I think, yeah, and I think it is their right to choose. So, I mean, just before you, be, I mean, I, I know that time is like a premium. I've got plenty of time for you. We'll, we'll bunch things together because I want to hear you out, Mark. I appreciate your so call. The flip side, and also not the flip side, but there's another angle, right? So, I and mean, that is a very sort of loving, moving, you know, amazing sort of story. Um, my parents uh, came to, you know, to the UK from other countries. So I, my, me and my sister were sort of born, you know, the first generation here. But that meant that when we were growing up, I had absolutely no other family over here so this idea of an extended family of cousins and aunts and you know and all this was completely alien to me I had none of that yeah. at all sort of growing up so there's another sort of side of family for like which which I have absolutely no concept 
of, right? And none of that. So it was just me and my sister. But here's the thing. I have not spoken and will not speak to my sister since the funeral of my parents. And that is because um, she... So this, here we go. You know, let's talk about families, right? And, and, and how you're born into this, into a family, and you don't get to choose, right, who you're born into family with. There isn't really a lot of detail to go into, and it wouldn't be right anyway, because it is just one-sided. But to Pracy, she treated them abysmally, in my opinion. My opinion was of her behavior towards them was terrible um, and was lacking in respect for all sorts of reasons, very historical. It goes, kind of, it goes a long way back. We had a sort of a, 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 a you know, unique upbringing. That, like I say, they came to the country from other places. Um, they were hippies. It was a different sort of upbringing. Right. I embraced that. My sister did not. I think she resented it. So there was a bit of a backlash. She never really sat very well with them. There was a lot of difficulty with her. Difficult, different personalities then? Didn't blend? Different per- yeah, completely different personalities. You know, I sort of embraced that, the difference. She um, found it, I think, sort of quite difficult. And she had a lot of resentment, I think, towards them. And, and as we sort of got older and, you know, became adults, she obviously went off to live her own life. But I felt that she treated them sort of terribly. Anyway, blah, 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 years go by. Finally, you know, he's, he's sort of dying, and we know this is about to happen. I go and stay with him for a few days. She pitches up and stays as well. So we're all there. Right. And um, she kind of makes a big show of sort of unity and in front of, you know, my dad, and, you know, we will, you know, we're going to kind of, reconnect and you guys are going to go but you know sort of basically go knowing that we're going to be okay me and her and we'll look after each other yeah we were sort of quite estranged and then they died um and then and then sort of something happened between them dying and the funeral which was only a couple of weeks later and um it, it 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 just sort of put her whole and bearing in mind, I'm not going to say this is definitive, but I know you're very sort of mindful of two people's, you know, come at, come at you know, situations from, you know, different angles. It's their own story. But my story is, my interpretation, my belief, is that the way she acted was unforgivable. Unforgivable. Um, and, um, and as a result, I have not spoken to her since since the funeral right so over six years ago right and we'll never speak to her again and um you know and and as far as i'm concerned you know she 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 is also dead to me um and it's and i just thought i would share that story because it's such a it's a weird sort of juxtaposition isn't it um those two you know those those two strands of my same family and how I felt towards, you know, my parents and how I felt sort of towards yeah. my only other, um, you know, living relative in this country. Um, but again, that, that I have no 
sorrow towards that. I, 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 I wouldn't even say I've had to reconcile it because um, it's not something that I miss. So around that time then, it feels like you accepted that you weren't part of that kind of family anymore. Well, certainly not part of her, mm. you know, family. And we were, you know, we were sort of estranged for a long time. We never really sort of got on. And then, well, once once he was sick through those seven years, we made more of an effort sort of for him, for them. Um, and there were times when we would sort of come together as a family and, and, and there was a sort of an element of closeness. But you know what you're saying the other day about um, when somebody you know, reveals themselves and to you. Yeah. And you then just need to make your choice about whether or not you're going to have that around you. You know, yeah. you can't change them, you can't, you know, all That's of that. It. Can you, you accept right. that they're different? And yeah, can that, you get are. around it? Can you still care about them? Can you still manage to um, incorporate that difference into your life without hurting yourself in some way yeah and my my um my conclusion to that was no so i'm not i haven't and i'm not and i won't so um do you feel like you're alone in the world now um well i don't feel like i'm alone in the world um, and this sort of invites, this kind of comes into maybe sort of very really slightly into other another area that I hear a lot on the show, right? When people talk about being alone and, and sort of loneliness, and um, uh, I I am sort of alone in, in the marital sense. <laughs> um, you know, I've got kids, but I'm I'm not with their mum. Right. Um, and I've had um, a sort of I have had a, a partner since then. But I ended that, uh, and I have—I've actually—I sort of created a life for myself, very much sort of around the children, right? I'm very much sort of a dad. Yeah. Um, and outside of that, I've sort of—I've uh, um, actively kind of reduced my um, my involvement and contact within the world. So that I can be alone as much as possible, and I don't feel lonely, and I don't feel alone. Um, and again, you know, it's something that I sort of hear quite a lot on the radio, and people do talk about loneliness. Um, but I don't feel loneliness. I sort of feel more content when I am in my own company than than I am sort of around other people. And it's not to say it's always been like that. Uh, you know, I'm in my late 40s, and I, um, throughout my 20s, had a very, uh, and 30s, you know, worked in a very sociable trade and had a, had a business that sort of basically involved me um, traveling around quite a lot with people all the time. Um, it's just, you know, how the years have gone by and my experience has gone by, um, my parents sort of you know leaving they were i was very sort of close to them mm. do you think you're protecting I, yourself now n- no 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 not protect, uh, genuinely genuinely it's not that it's not that kind of insular sort of protectionism it's just um i just find sort of people so disappointing most of the yeah. time 
um, that uh, I have an easier time, <laughs> an easier time without them, um, without being around them. So I, even though I am on my own, I don't feel alone or lonely. It's really fascinating. I mean, whatever works for you, whatever works for you. I, I know, and it's um, it, and it really does work for me. And, and um, you know, I still have a couple of of what I call sort of really close friends um, who I do see and who you know I do speak to a lot. Good. Um, and they sort of I'm saying it. good because it reassures me that you are quote unquote normal. Do you know what I mean? But it's none of my business. Whatever works for you works for you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, normal. But it's, it, it's, most people sort of find it, most people find it sort of hard to either understand or to accept, you know, when I say those things to them, when I sort of tell the story about my parents and, um, uh, and the reason I'm using Mark is just because, you know, at the time, it um, it's quite a unique sort of situation. It got a bit of press coverage, yeah. you know, and um, so I just you know, wanted to be a little bit fairer to to um, my sister, yeah. for example, who's still alive. Uh, hence, hence, I'm using my name, Mark. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 it's sometimes it's difficult for people. You know, they, they kind of they'll say to me, "Well, why don't you want to meet someone? You know, why why don't you want to do more? Why don't you want to kind of you know go and do this that, and the other? Why do you?" Sure, you must sort of feel lonely or... No, but that's only because they're comparing you to themselves and they're thinking about what they want. I know. Or or what about your mum? You know, why didn't she want to stay around for the kids? Aren't you angry uh, for that, you know? How could she go... How could she just, you know, leave... You know, she she didn't have cancer. Why didn't she want to stay around and see her grandchildren grow up? You know, why doesn't that make you... Doesn't that make you angry? What's the point of being angry about it? Huh? What would be the point of being angry about it? Wouldn't bring them well, back, would it? Uh, no, no. But I mean, uh, you know, why didn't you talk her out of oh. going? Why didn't, why didn't you try and, you know, make her stay around for the grandkids? And I did have that conversation with her. Um, but it wasn't a very long one. Um, and and you know, she, you know, I had to respect what she wanted. I mean, that's probably my only regret, I guess, in any of it. Um, is that they didn't get to sort of see the, the kids sort of growing up, yeah. you know, over the last six and six and a bit years. Yeah. That's my only regret. But the rest of it, um, I wouldn't change it, you know, for a thing. I feel so lucky that I, you know, have those memories that I haven't had to see them for years, you know, in pain or like, you know, in hospice. Um, and that I also, there's nothing I didn't get to say to them. And I think that that really is a blessing, you know, in life. It's an incredible story. Thank you for trusting me with it, Mark. I really appreciate your call tonight. Well, I mean, it's um, I uh, it, I did, I mean, it took me a little while to call. It's taken me two days to call up, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was going to call on Friday. I did, I did tweet you about it, and yeah. I was going to call you on Friday, and then I bottled it. And then when I sort of saw that Ian wasn't in tonight, I thought, well, this is it, maybe. Huh? This is it, you thought. Let's do it. I thought, well, you know, don't know when the next chance will come. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks for telling me, Mark. It's um, it's given me a lot to think about, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Thanks very much. I'm going to have to leave it there, because Daryl's waiting to come in. Flipping it. Uh, um, wow. 
thanks for your company over the last few days when I've been on my Todd. I've not felt alone at all. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll be back in business with Ian tomorrow. In the meantime, look after yourselves and uh, I'm going to hand you over to Daryl Morris. He's got an absolutely wonderful show for you. Have no doubt about that. You take care of yourselves. Good night. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.